Into the Weird, episode 22, Blasphemy in the Bullpen. Into the Weird, a podcast celebrating the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me is my co-host, the former Herald of Galactus himself, Herman Lowe. How are you, Herman? <laughs> I'm great, thanks, Billy. Yeah, oh, I can see why you picked the Herald of Galactus this time as my moniker, because Herald, Herman, sounds a little bit the same. A little mm-hmm. bit. <laughs> man, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be like the Silver Surfer soon, man, my, you know, my bald pate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I'm loving it. Um, I'm not too uh, bad at surfing either, you know. Um, during my 20 years here in Taiwan, hitting the beaches in the south, I've, I've learned uh, a few surfing tricks. So, you know, I can make a pretty good herald if I need to. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'll have to uh, get some lessons from you when uh, I come to visit. <laughs> we'll do so, man. A couple of uh, middle-agers showing the little young lads how it's done here. <laughs> Sounds like a hospital visit right afterwards. <laughs> hey, man, we'll lie side by side in, in a hospital room and, and set up another uh, bucket list. <laughs> Why not? Well, now I'm feeling, who are you? Are you going to be Keanu Reeves and I'll be... Uh... Patrick Swayze from that movie, right? Okay, <laughs> cool, movie. man. I, I don't mind. I, I prefer Patrick Swayze, but Keanu Reeves is not too shoddy. So I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll let you take the pick there. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's I, a handsome. Both are handsome guys. Oh, well, I guess Patrick's not with us anymore. I keep forgetting about that. Yeah, well, his memory's still with us. Yeah. <laughs> every time yeah, I yeah, step in, sure. every time I step into a roadhouse, I keep looking around for the bouncer that resembles <laughs> him, and, and never, I'm always disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a couple of guys resembling Sam Elliott, though. So, <laughs> ooh, yeah, Sam Elliott—he's the real, the real man of that movie. Yeah, I mean, actually, my dad, man, my dad looks like Sam Elliott. I never told you. Yeah, he's oh, quite, wow. quite the ladies' man. My dad. Yeah, I wish I had his looks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sam Elliott, man, good. He's awesome. I love him. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, for a while there, I was afraid you're gonna say since we're doing we mentioned the bucket list. I thought you said we're we're gonna be resembling people like. Uh, uh, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson <laughs> weren't they in that movie <laughs> thank god you didn't say that 
So yeah. No, no, no. I take Swayze <laughs> and Keanu Reeves over those guys any day. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Action wise, not acting wise. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah. And no. you and I, we're men of action. I mean, especially absolutely. you know, looking at the content we're going to be talking about today. I mean, th these two issues listeners that we're going to be discussing is again about the good doctor himself Stephen Strange but lots of action in these right Billy lots of mystical mm -hmm. battles and uh, the story goes pretty fast in both of these issues what we're going to be talking about listeners is just to refresh your memories we mentioned this a couple of episodes back this is the end of the Marvel premiere run featuring Doctor Strange this is issue 13 and 14 right Billy mm -hmm. and the storyline um, is the same in both of these issues um, but it just steamrolls along i think i mean this is very fast-paced what do you think oh absolutely yeah i mean i think uh part of it might have been that engelhart and brunner you know had this little story cooked up after they finished off the previous plots uh from before they were on the book and then they were looking to just get to you know uh what happens in uh, doctor strange number one which we won't mention any of that don't want to spoil any of that ahead of time but i think they were looking to get into that storyline uh, that starts off the Doc's new series then after that. Not that they, you know, rushed through it and didn't do a good job or anything like that, but I think they were just, you know, they had a lot of plots going there. They were like, yep, we want to do this and we want to do that and let's go. And yeah. Get the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I never get, I mean, they deal with pretty, um, you know, earth shattering kind of, or even cosmically, should we say, cosmo shattering concepts. Uh, but mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like they're rushing it, even though they, they wrap it up in two issues. Um, which is the case now, um, you know, compared to their Shumagorath saga before, which took like 10 issues, um, it still doesn't feel like it's a rush job because um, all the concepts that they deal with, they, they, they spend time on and they give them their due. Um, these are really very philosophical kind of um, ideas that they're dealing with, right, Billy? The, the creation of the universe, the nature of religion, the, the human spirit and, you know, evolution even which is not a philosophical concept, that's a scientific concept, but they do, they throw all of that into the mix. And, um, you know, uh, I think they, they spend, you know, the allotted time that they have on it, but also, you know, they do a good job of, of getting their ideas across. So I, I felt that even though it was fast-paced, I still, you know, they didn't um, uh, shirk at, you know, dealing with all the concepts, uh, respect, uh, you know, respectfully. So, yeah, I, I, I think they did a bang-up job on these two issues. Oh, yeah, they did. Fantastic work. And I think the comic book industry was, you know, more than ready for the subject matter uh, that they put forth in these two issues. You know, it had been, mm -hmm. you know, a, I shouldn't say a long time coming, but definitely it's it's, you know, it was good timing on their part to have something like this uh, in the yeah. early 19th. I agree with you. Yeah, we're not um, going to spoil things right off the bat, but I, I can mention that, you know, in the in the mid to late 60s, early 70s, the whole idea of uh, God is dead kind of permeated um, the, the culture and the media of the time, you know, with especially in, um, you know, uh, the fictional realms, for instance, like Rosemary's Baby and then The Exorcist and um, things like that, you know, which dealt with the nature of, of belief and... Um, you know, uh, this definitely plays in that, uh, you know, sandbox, right, Billy? You've got a lot of, yeah, you've got a lot of those ideas floating around. I think, like you say, America, especially, and maybe not the rest of the world, but in the States where this comic mattered, you know, was primed for these kind of ideas. 
And of course, a lot of controversy as well caused by by these two issues. We should say that before we get into them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's a product of its time as well. You know, because like we've said in the past too. You know what what they did in these two uh, two issues. You know, two and a half, three issues. You know, it's for the time. It was very. You know, uh, I don't know. Ground breaking is the word, but push the envelope. You know, with some subjects, but. In 2020, of course, it would be like not a big deal. Everybody would be like, "Oh, that's nice." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. You, yeah. If you this... take it in the context of you know 1974, it was a big deal. Yeah, definitely. No, it it was a huge deal. I mean, this is just uh, a couple of years after Stanley did the drug story in um, Amazing Spider-Man that uh, sort of mm-hmm. um, you know uh, glossed over the comic book uh, code. Uh, rules and regulations and then uh, you know the comic book code had already been shaken at this point in time but this I, I think this this story in these two issues was so mind-bogglingly you know uh, blasphemous in the eyes of some that they might have just um, they, they couldn't believe Brunner and uh, and Engelhardt would do something like this you know what I mean Billy and some of them didn't yeah. actually get what they were really doing you know so you had these two kind of groups of readers i think the, the guys who got it and couldn't believe they had the audacity to do this and then the other group which didn't really understand what they were reading i mean when i first read these issues as a kid i didn't really understand them you know but i did understand the biblical references which was for me you know i i, I knew this was taboo for some people in my family to to have me read stuff like this luckily yeah. they didn't know what i was reading right so, of course, but, you know, it took me a while to figure out that, you know, the, the protagonist or the, the antagonist, CZ Neg, is Genesis spelled backward. <laughs> because when I was a kid, you know, I did, uh, it took me a while. But, you know, obviously this plays with the idea of creation. And this is obviously Brunner and uh, Engelhardt's own, um, you know, version of the story, <laughs> really. You know, or they're even subverting the original tale as told to a, let's say a christian youth so um which we were right well you yeah, might like still if be I <laughs> if i would have been reading this when i was like young and my mom would have saw this yeah she wouldn't have been a happy camper but uh i didn't read this until i was you know much older and already you know yeah kind of like you know i don't want to say on my own but old enough that you know my yeah. mom would have been like you know what is this? But she wouldn't have like flipped her lid. But if I was like you know six yeah. and remiss, she would have been like, get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, a lot of parents way back when they weren't really careful, you know, when it came to comic books to see what kids were reading, except if the covers were very lurid. You know, like I yes. definitely I had to hide all my vampirellas, I for instance, yeah. you know, or my yeah. monster magazines that portrayed you know blood and. And, and, and murder on the covers and, and things like that, yeah. or people being menaced by these horrible monsters. Of course, I had to hide that. But, you know, comic books, they sort of occupied this limbo in a parent's mind, I think. Um, you know, the superhero comic books, at least, where they just um, you saw them, but they were kind of like invisible to them. The piles would be lying around, but, you know, my dad definitely, you know, he, if, unless something had war or something on the cover, you know, like Sergeant Rock or Weird War Tales, then my dad wouldn't be interested in it, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and my mom too. My mom, oh, this is another superhero. Oh, this is Doctor Strange. Oh, blue, you know, red, yellow, kind of like Superman. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of like, I think, how they thought about it. But, yeah. you know, let's not keep the, the listeners in suspense, Billy. We're, we're going to 
um, get into this right now and uh, mm-hmm. give a, a brief synopsis uh, of the first issue and then uh, discuss that, talk about the cover and the art and everything as we usually do. Um, but before we do that, listeners, we do have to mention that this is, like I said just before, this is the end of the Marvel premiere run. Uh, so the next time we're going to be talking Doctor Strange is the first issue of Doctor Strange Volume 2, which is his second series. Woo-hoo. And um, that's going to be, you know, a milestone for us, right, Billy? Because that's the yeah. series that got me into loving Doctor Strange. I mean, that's the issues that mm-hmm. I bought when I was a kid were from that run, you know, from Doctor yep. Strange Volume 2. And uh, the Brunner, of course, the first six issues fe- still featured Brunner. But after that, Colin jumped on. And, of course, Brunner turned up again, as did people like Jim Starlin uh, much later on. They did a few single issues here and there. Again. But, you know, all, it was all yeah. Colin. And that that's what, along with Tomb of Dracula, cemented my love for Gene Colin. So I think you're the same, right, Billy? Yeah, I actually read that material before I read the Marvel premiere material, but I don't want to get into it too much though, because I got you know I know you and I have a lot to say about that yeah, series, and especially right. when we're going to start out because that first issue that episode is going to be a long one, so get ready. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So readers uh, or listeners, I should say, good things are on the horizon, but this is pretty mm-hmm. good too. The end of Marvel premiere, they went oh, out yeah. with a with a blast, with a bang. Well, literally, they went out with a big bang. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, pretty <laughs> kind much. Of, kind of, kind <laughs> So let's get to this. Billy, you're going to be handling the first synopsis, which is issue 13. Um, you can Correct. regale us with the specs for that issue. I'm looking forward to this one. Let's, let's do this. Okay, so Marvel premiere number 13 from January 1974. This is uh, cover by Frank Brunner, pencils and inks, letters by... Your boy, Gaspar Saladino. <laughs> what a name. What a name. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then the story is called Time Doom, and it's uh, co-plotted by Steve Englehart and Frank Brunner, and the script is by Steve Englehart, and then the pencils are Frank Brunner and inks by Brunner, Neil Adams, Alan Weiss, you know, the whole Krusty Bunkers team. So oh, yeah. <laughs> take your go. pick there. <laughs> and then colors by Frank Brunner and letters by John Costanza. <laughs> excellent excellent Billy yeah. and um, this can be found uh, listeners for you who want to read along with us on the Marvel app but you could also find this in uh, the Doctor Strange a separate reality trade paperback which we loaded on previous episodes as well as the essential Doctor Strange volume 2 right Billy yeah um, and your masterworks too as well yeah 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 that's how I'm reading it it's uh, specifically yep. the Marvel masterworks volume 4 which is, oh, sorry, no, the Marvel Masterworks Volume 5, which yeah. I'm reading here. And, um, yeah, so all of those things are recommended, and it's it's probably better if you read along. But if you don't have it in front of you, listeners, then check out our, the blog. We're, we'll, again, be posting images, you know, so that you can follow along with us. So, Billy, what is this first issue about? This is a complete new storyline. sort of. Well, actually, it's continuing from the last one, which was... Uh, you know, um, just to refresh the, the memories of the listeners, um, after Strange discovered that, uh, you know, Mordo has been seeking the Book of Cagliostro, um, he was uh, swept into the time stream at the end of Marvel premiere number 12, right? So, but mm-hmm. but what I mean is this storyline is now the, the CZNX storyline, which sort of was just, um, you know, previewed in the previous issue. Yeah, we didn't see any of the characters. We just, you yeah. know, had a couple thrown out there so this is really where it hits the fan and it, it almost does feel like a fresh start in a two-part story but technically you want to get really technical 
Mike a three-parter. Yeah, it's yeah. actually a three-parter, yeah. Okay, so uh, take it away, Billy. Okay. When we last saw Doctor Strange, he was jumping into a time vortex that was hopefully going to lead him to his old nemesis, Baron Mordo. As he traverses through time, he quickly recounts his adventure so far. After that, he dives further into the time stream and almost immediately finds Mordo. The two engage in mystic combat, but then suddenly some outside force starts causing both of them to spiral out of control. Both men end up floating into separate times. The doc winds up in 18th century Paris. He surveys the situation and sees a procession as people are carrying a man through a city and to a castle. It is Cagliostro himself, and the doc proceeds to visit him and explain Mordo's intentions. At first, Cagliostro seems agitated, but then he dismisses the doc and disappears to another time and place. The doc then devises a plan to capture Mordo. He uses an illusion to disguise himself as Cagliostro to get the upper hand on him. Once Mordo shows up, the plan works, but then Mordo is mysteriously whisked away to parts unknown. As the doc contemplates what is really going on here, he hears someone approaching. So he reverts back to his Cagliostro disguise. The door opens and the doc is flabbergasted, flabbergasted to see himself. This quote-unquote Doctor Strange offers the same dialogue he did when he first met Cagliostro. Then the other Doctor Strange vanishes, vanishes suddenly. As Doctor Strange attempts to solve this mystery, he's suddenly accosted by Cagliostro. And not only him, but Baron Mordo as well. The two defeat the doc but then Cagliostro turns on Mordo and strikes him down. He then explains he's from the 31st century and his name is Sissi Neg. So there we go. <laughs> wow. Yeah, very succinct, Billy. Uh, uh-huh. Great summary. So, um, oh, I guess we should talk about the cover first. Um, oh, yeah. What did oh, you think wow. about this cover? I thought, whoa, this is one of Brenner's yeah, best. Yeah, I like this one quite a bit. Yeah, he really, I mean... You really can't look at this cover and think, well, he should have done this or should have done that. There's like, I don't understand how anybody could really pick anything out with this cover that's wrong. I mean, it's vibrant. It pops. There's all like green, purple, blue. I mean, he gets everybody right. You see uh, Cagliostro and Mordo both attacking the dock. And it says, not all my power can save me. And they're, you know, getting ready to, uh, it looks like, you know, maybe kill him. Yeah, but it's just oh, it's incredible. It's a it's a perfect cover. Yeah, I agree. This this one has nothing, and you've got that great magical effect that Brunner's that he illustrates so well when Stevens using his powers um, as he's erecting these two magical shields to block Cagliostro and Mordo's blast. It just looks great with that little yeah. twinkling effect, and then mm. you know the, uh, the docks right in the center, you know, focusing all our attention on him, and then his two enemies on either side of him, showing that he's in dire straits. So. Great cover, mm-hmm. yeah, Billy. And look, look at that purple smoke in the background. You know mm. that um, ominous kind of um, fog. <laughs> <laughs> Just expecting Adrian Barbeau to pop up next and say, Ooh. "Hello, guys." <laughs> or what does she say in that beginning of that movie? Oh, she's talking to the people out at sea, and she On says, the radio. "Oh, ahoy, mateys!" Ooh, man, <laughs> when she says that, that, that that does something for me. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Makes you want to become a sailor right away, Ooh. merchant. Yeah, uh, join the merchant navy. Yeah, climb a lighthouse or something. Oh, man. I'm yeah. telling you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. 
man, she's awesome. So uh, mm. I think our listeners uh, know of our love of hers. If you've been following our live tweets of the horror movies we've been doing. <laughs> but, yep. um, you know, uh, getting back to Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then the first one is also cover worthy. The splash page on the very first page, right? Billy, you've got Doc oh, falling nice. through these triangles of time, almost. You, these weird uh, 3D triangles. Uh, not pyra- pyramids, I- I'd say. They're, they're hollow in the center. So he falls through these triangular gateways in time. And then you've got the the background as uh, this sort of wavy effect. Um, almost looks like a sort of a nebula or something in space. But you've also got the face of um, Cagliostro, or as it turns out, CZ Neg in the background. Um, looking on as Doctor Strange is sort of plummeting heedlessly through time. Uh, this is also a great splash page, right, Billy? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then I like how also it says Time Doom, and then it looks like it's like a mirror effect, and then yeah. it says Time Doom, like, in reverse, kind of like on the other side of it, kind of letting you, you know, they're kind of showing their hand a little bit with, uh, with CZ you know, how they're going to, mm. yeah, CC Neg and how they're going to play with time. So that's, that, to me, it's brilliant. That's just, I, I don't know, like I said, people that haven't read this yet get that, epic collection or the masterworks or something because you're or even like you said on the app read like check it out on the app because it's just it's incredible these guys were the top dog for dr strange and this these issues just prove it yeah 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 um what do you call that kind of uh word like billy a a palindrome i think isn't it oh yeah yeah Yeah. that's season x name meaning genesis backwards and we'll see why he's (laughs) called that um, you kind of think he must have picked that name, though. That couldn't have been his birth name. Because <laughs> yeah, I think, he, well, you know. <laughs> you know, it fits in nicely with his plans. But but if you think about it, you know, um, before we get into the issue itself, I, I think I read an interview with Brenner. Um, this this was uh, actually Brenner's idea, not Engelhardt's idea. He came to Engelhardt with this idea for the storyline after he saw mm-hmm. the, the film, apparently after he saw the film Camelot. Um, wow. And in the film Camelot, um, there was obviously the character of Merlin, and they made um, you know uh, a lot about Merlin's origin and how Merlin ages backwards in backwards in time. If you uh-huh. think about it, that's how Merlin's immortality works. Kind of, he ages backwards in time. So um, Brunner took that idea and he he kind of thought, what if what if you extrapolate that even further? What if you take this guy from the far future and have him? you know, age backwards in time. And, and every era he goes to where there's magic, he sort of feeds off of that magic. And then he came to the Brunner, uh, to Engelhardt with that idea, and then they, they sort of um, extrapolated upon that. And that's how the storyline came to be. So, you know, um, I think uh, aging backwards in time, writing the name backwards, it's sort of like, it, it's a nice synchronicity there, right, Billy? Where it's sort of, the, like you say, the mirror effect and this mirrors what will happen later on in the storyline when we learn, you know, why this this uh, trip through time is mm. happening. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. This palindrome makes for a nice addition to the storyline. It uh-huh. sort of enhances the overall effect. But, you know, oh, yeah. to, to get to the story, then after that first splash page, right, Billy, we were treated to Stephen flying through uh, sort of his memories. <laughs> you know, he's flying through time, but he's mm. also... Um, wrapping or, or, or sort of giving us a quick recap of what happened in the previous issue with Lilia's death, the gypsy sorceress, and then him discovering the book of Cagliostro and then eventually following Mordo into the time stream after he learns of 
you know, Mordo's plans, which is seems basically just to to change the past so that Mordo would be, you know, the 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 well, I don't know if you could, would call it the ancient one's favorite or but he would he wants to be the sorcerer supreme. So he's thinking right. he can manipulate time. That's Mordo's initial plan, but the plan quickly changes, right, once they encounter Cagliostro, who's in fact not Cagliostro, who is CZ Nick. Yeah, so so I like that that bit of a just a one page recap, and then a quick mystical battle with Mordo. But they realize they don't have their full powers, right, Billy? Yeah. Now, now this is something that you and I are not always a fan of uh, the the weakening Stephen Strange trope. So uh-huh. to to get him to be you know in a position of of uh, danger, you know, to to make the reader more, you know, uh, to to make everything more fraught. You know the situation. You know because obviously we respond to that. We don't want to always see you know Superman or all of our major characters always being invulnerable, always winning. Um, but you know they they keep coming back to this depowering Stephen kind of thing. But here it sort of makes sense to me because what do you think, Billy? In this case, I I can give them a pass. For- we'll be back after a quick break. Ever wish you could sip cocktails and discuss great books with your friends while hanging out in a rundown piano bar? Here on the Literary Guys podcast, that's what we do. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. Each month, we discuss books from two different views of modern masculinity. From both a gay and a straight perspective. From To Kill a Mockingbird to future governors in the jungle trying to kill a predator. We welcome everyone to join our conversation on the good and toxic of what literature and pop culture have to say about masculinity. So pour yourself a drink and join us now for Season 3. Literary Guys. That's G-U-I-S-E. LiteraryGuys.com. I see what you did there. Doing that. Yeah, for sure. Especially once by issues and we kind of realize uh, what really is going on with Cagliostro. And then next issue, to, you know, for sure, you realize that he really is a very very powerful person and he's doing something with time that you know makes him even more powerful so mm. I, I don't mind it then you know yeah. I mean, it's just that's okay if it's a well-written story i can take it but yeah. sometimes it's you know used very flippantly and as just like a you know deus ex machina to yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, move yeah, a story yeah. along then i don't really care for it then but that's not the case here yeah yeah exactly um and then you know um as mordo escapes you know, again, diving through some kind of a hole in the time stream. And like you mentioned in the synopsis, they're in 18th century Paris now. There's this great panel of Cagliostro being, you know, pulled along on a horse cart by these French citizens. <laughs> they're chanting his name and throwing roses at him. There's even one guy climbing up a lamppost. <laughs> Oh man! Now it looks like he has no clothes on too. It's like, yeah. what is this maniac doing? Is he naked? Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they didn't have they didn't have electricity in 18th century Paris, but you know, they did have these lampposts, obviously with oil lamps burning. So I'm, yeah. I'm guessing this is an oil lamp, but it really looks like an electrical <laughs> lamp. It does, <laughs> kind of yeah. like Jules Verne, uh, you know, esque. But um, then you've got um, uh, these this great shot of Cagliostro. Kind of reminding me of you know the old Hammer flicks that didn't deal with vampires and Frankenstein, and, and with with Count Dracula when they dealt with with satanic rituals and you know like um, you know the devil rides out. You had this great character oh, yeah. Makato, 
he kind of reminds me a little bit, even though his face doesn't look like Makoto, but the robes do. He kind of mm-hmm. like reminds me of that character, Makoto, that um, that uh, disciple of uh, Beelzebub or of uh, Baphomet, sorry, the disciple of Baphomet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yep, Baphomet. I like those, uh, you know, cult leaders. <laughs> and then, you know, there's some great panels, you know, very small panels, but very detailed, which shows Cagliostro, you know, meditating in his sanctum, which has a very similar window to Stephen's uh, sanctum. It almost lo- looks like the Anomaly Rue, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Billy, did you see uh, which oh, page yeah. I mentioned when Stephen walks towards his abode? Um, yep. And he's sitting in this kick-ass chair, which is like this serpent-like <laughs> dragon-ish chair that, <laughs> with this dragon head looming above his head. It's just amazing. I'll post these panels, listeners, and then you can see what we're talking about. So, Billy, then what happens? I mean, what, what you mentioned is, uh, you know, obviously Cagliostro just um, doesn't want to hear word one of Stephen's, uh, you know, entreaties, and he just disappears, and then Stephen takes his place. <laughs> Because he figures that, hey, this guy hasn't met Mordo yet. That means Mordo's going to materialize in this timeline a little bit after mine. But before that, there's an awesome little bit. As he as he becomes Cagliostro, Stephen disguises himself as Cagliostro. He lazily calls forth the, 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 the book of Cagliostro from the bookshelf. <laughs> He's just like using his magic. <laughs> a simple spell with Droid closer. Come on, Stephen, it's three feet away from you. <laughs> He could just walk over there and pick up the book. And and he reads through the book and he says, this is the same book that I instructed Clea to read. Okay, I'll leave her a little bit of a message. <laughs> so what does he do? He uses his finger to zap a little uh, love note to Clea. All my love, Stephen. <laughs> and then the very next panel is Clea. Suddenly, the, this message materializes as she's doing her homework, which was assigned by Stephen in the previous issue. She's like, oh, that page was blank. But when I glanced at it before, now it's got a note from Stephen. <laughs> now, she doesn't look flattered. She looks shocked. She looks frightened. Like, what's yeah, happening it's a good, here? Yeah, it's a good panel, though. I like it. It looks oh, really it's... good. But, like, the book is glowing and green. And the effect has like makes her hair look green too. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I like that that bit of a sequence there, even though it's so wacky. But then you know, Mordo does show up, and um, you know, he immediately makes well Stephen an offer. Of course, this is now he thinks Cagliostro. He says we should, um, you know, uh, team up to defeat the sorcerer who's coming from a different time period. And he just lies through his teeth here, right, Billy? Uh-huh. He just lies to Cagliostro. He says, a terrible threat, um, you know, and uh, a fiend from the future wishes to destroy all other magicians from all other time periods. <laughs> what? Where does he come up with this drivel? This is just to get Cagliostro to turn against Stephen, right? Oh, yeah. And then you figure he just... once he it seems like once he lays hands on, you know, the fake Cagliostro here he knows once he touches him that something's wrong here because you figure Mordo's a, a pretty experienced mage as we know as yeah. well so yeah. he realizes something's wrong here and then you know of course him and Strange go at it but how about that insane demon or whatever that 
creepy thing is that <laughs> Steven conjures up mm. to attack Mordo. <laughs> you know, this is a power that he doesn't uh, use often, but he should use this more often, right, Billy? I mean, if you yeah. think about it, he specializes in black magic, which in mm-hmm. Stephen Strange's universe does not mean evil magic. It just means almost like, you know, a forbidden kind of uh, magic that's too dangerous yeah. to play with unless you're the Sorcerer Supreme like he is. So mm-hmm. he conjures up this demon with multiple eyes. I mean, this guy's got two heads similar to the Bi-Beast, you know, the mm-hmm. Hulk foe, also from the, the Bronze Age. And then he, he's got, you know, these two heads. And the little head on top has two small miniature arms. <laughs> and then there's two eyeballs on the oh, shoulders, too. Gross, oh. man. Gross. Oh, that's <laughs> oh the horrible. dialogue. The dialogue there is awesome now. Steven, so look behind you, evil one. Look behind you and see what I have conjured to halt your mad scheme. <laughs> Immortal, by the gods, what foul creature of the pits is this? <laughs> oh, that's great. But, you know, Mordo then, you know, falls again. That's why Mordo keeps losing to Steven, because I'm just thinking he's not a very good chess player, right? Because mm-hmm. Steven sets him up very nicely for a fall here. This creature was just conjured up by Steven. He knew Mordo would take it out. And mm-hmm. it was conjured up by Stephen so that he could gain time. Stephen Strange could gain time to get the Eye of Agamotto into play. And um, so while Mordo's dispatching this creature, Stephen says, Look again, Baron, for while you were concentrated upon my diversion, I gained the necessary time to focus my forces in the eye, in the eye of my amulet. And there's this great panel where the little Eye of Agamotto floats out in front <laughs> of Stephen again <laughs> and just <laughs> immediately attacks Mordo and just you know, subsumes him, right? Controls him. And then Steven's got him in his power and he's forcing him to, you know, give it up, give it all up. But then Mm -hmm. something happens, like Mordo just disappears. Mm -hmm. So some power, more powerful than the Eye of uh, Agamotto, has stolen him away. You know, so Mm -hmm. uh, this is now disturbing Steven. What could be powerful enough to do this? And then another visitor calls, and this is where our minds are completely blown, right, Billy? Because <laughs> when someone else comes to the door, Stephen again assumes the guise of Cagliostro. He's still, you know, uh, befuddled, befuddled after this battle with Mordo. He can't understand how the Eye of Agamotto could have failed him. And then it turns out the visitor is himself <laughs> enacting exactly <laughs> the same scene previously when Stephen first showed up to talk to to Cagliostro so that was him he was talking to himself the very first time it's just time in a loop yeah time loop yeah so but he manages to break out of this time loop briefly when Cag- the well the, I'm not going to say the real Cagliostro arrives but when we finally learn who has been assuming Cagliostro's identity in this century right Billy and it isn't um, the actual Cagliostro because as we know he's a foe of the Dracula from the tomb of Dracula and we'll be talking more about him on the Long Box of Darkness and on some issues, uh, some, you know, episodes of Into the Weird, right, Billy? Yeah. But mm-hmm. this is, in fact, not the real Cagliostro. And it turns out that the real Cagliostro never wrote a book about time. Uh, like you say, this is a sorcerer from the future. But before we fa- find out who that is, he attacks Stephen, and then Mordo shows up. And Mordo's like, yeah, let's all gang up on the Sorcerer Supreme here. And they, mm-hmm. that's where we get that great cover image from, which which actually happens. Stephen is assailed from both sides, and he's he's beaten into the ground by their magics. And Mordo's about ready to kill him, 
Now, the funny thing is, Mordo has just taken Steven out with the help of a greater foe, and he immediately says, Ha! Now I shall be the ruler of the world. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I don't think so, Mordo. You're first going to have to deal with this guy who's more powerful than you. And, you know, before he can do that, though, Cagliostro just blasts him. Isn't that a great panel, Billy? Like oh, yeah. where Cagliostro uses his magics to just take Mordo out. That's an amazing panel. You know what? I, yeah? That, looking at that panel... Doesn't it remind you of the Roy Thomas and Gene Colan issues of Doctor Strange that preceded this? Yeah. It very much does, like especially the the, the blast and how Mordo looks. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me very much of that artwork. Yeah. Now, if I were George Lucas, you know, this is exactly where I would have gotten the Emperor's uh, Force Lightning Blast from. You know what I mean? But it does have a strong callback to the Roy Thomas issues, you know, especially the effect of Colin drawing the magical blasts. What do they call them? The bolts of bedevilment? Yeah. Now, this is not a bolt of bedevilment, but um, it does have similar, you know, uh, a similar effect. So then, as Mordo's blasted, now, now look at the very next page, Billy. Mordo's just been laid low. And mm. he on the next page, the very first panel, Mordo's lying on his back, his face all over his hands. He's obviously in pain, right? Racked by agony here, lying on his back. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Cagliostro changing into his true form. And then he sort of quickly gives his origin. It turns out that he's from the 31st century and his name is CZ Neg, right? And mm -hmm. so now we learn why he's different than your normal run-of-the-mill sorcerer, right, Billy? What is his, seems to be his main power? Well, he says, like, they actually do a really good job here. I mean, uh, he, his dialogue, there's one panel where he says, he explains what you're saying, so I'll just uh, read that. He says, in your era, you have a theory that the amount of mystical energy in the universe is finite. Mm. In my era, that is proven fact, and thus began my plan. And basically what he says is, he's going to just travel around through all the different times and, like, a sponge soak up all the magic and be... He's going to take that energy and all that power and all that magic, and he is basically going to, what does he say here? Uh, I shall control all the mystical energy there is, and he says, the dawn of creation. So that's, your, that's a really big uh, hint to where we're going in the next issue. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, the, the, the only thing that, that bothers me, right, Billy, is that, okay, he has been jumping backwards in time and stopping in eras where there's lo lots of magic available. Mm -hmm. And then he's been absorbing that magic. So, theoretically, he came to 18th century France to absorb the magic of Cagliostro, mm -hmm. I'm thinking. But he admits that Cagliostro isn't around. He's fighting Dracula. So what CZ Neg did is he took a bit of a break from his plan and decided to write a book. <laughs> he went on a sabbatical <laughs> uh -huh, and, yeah. and wrote a book. And then, you know, the book was the, the book about the, that he, well, he ghost wrote it, <laughs> if you want to talk, uh, mention that, because he wrote as Cagliostro. And, um, you know, uh, simply to, uh, to tell people his theory of time. But, you know, that sort of, this is what bothers me. If you're going to write a book... Why write it as another guy that exists and give Cagliostro all the, the credit for writing this book? Yeah. You know, and, and, and anyway, the fact that he wrote this book is the very reason why Mordo and Stephen could follow him back into time, possibly messing with his plans. 
So, you know, it's kind of like he almost wanted to be defeated or wanted to, you know, have someone. Well, that, that could probably be the reason he wanted some witnesses along for the ride. Right, Billy? That's probably why he wrote the book. Yeah, it's a little weird. I mean, mm. couldn't he have just attacked the two of them in the 20th century and stolen their power and stuff like that? But yeah. I don't know, maybe just maybe bringing them back to the 18th century and Cagliostro's there too. There was more magical energy for him to absorb. But yeah, not sure. But it's it, it all works out in the end. So it's, it's not yeah. bad. It doesn't bother me too much. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he, like you said, he brought, he um, arranged it so that they would be back in time with him at the same time of Cagliostro has kind of worked because he has been leeching off of all of their magical energies all this time, right? So he's yeah. been getting more powerful. And then uh, we learn his true plan on the on the very final place, right after he finished with his origin story. He says uh -huh. that, you know, um, he has uh, one main goal, and that is, you know, to go all the way back to the dawn of creation absorbing magical energies as he goes along and then to become god that mm -hmm. is his main objective he wants to be god he wants to recreate the universe in his own image you know mm -hmm. so then um you know mordo and strange realize oh man this is more serious than they hope but mordo already goes off on the like <laughs> an evil tangent where he <laughs> says okay i know his plan now this this plan is, is mind-boggling but i will be his disciple i will become his assistant <laughs> i can ask a boon from him <laughs> i can yeah, be his typical, slave evil typical. fashion instead of wanting to right wrongs or even be you know supreme over that guy he just is like i'll be the first in line to be a butt kissing lackey yeah it's like oh exactly. okay mordo great job buddy <laughs> yeah you asshole <laughs> and then steven's like i gotta stop this you know what i mean it's like yeah just good the dichotomy there with you know the good and evil and what you know steven's all about yeah. trying to right a wrong and mordo's like nah it's all good let's leave it wrong i'll just be a you know a whipping boy for this guy and yeah. that'll be good enough <laughs> That's right, and and you know the the the, the very final panel um, has this uh, little bit of a blurb for the next issue saying the final chapter is coming up, folks, in another story unique to the history of literature, and then they end by saying and all for twenty cents. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> they're saying that this is the greatest story or the most unique story in all of fiction, in all of literature, but it's only twenty cents. <laughs> And then CZ Neg Genesis. And this is the first time as a kid I realized that, oh, okay, CZ Neg is Genesis. When they literally wrote it side by side for me to, to, to pour over, right, Billy? Decipher it, yeah. Yeah. So now, now we know what his plan is. He wants to recreate the universe. He wants to become Genesis, you know, as God, which is a pretty serious deal because think about it. At this point in time, Billy, Stephen's thinking that if he does recreate the world, all of the things that Stephen knows and loves will be gone. You know, Clea might not exist. He might not exist. He might never be the Sorcerer Supreme. You know, everything might be different in, in a new universe recreated by this, you know, God, this seizing egg. So, um, you know, but that's not what's going to happen, folks. We're going to, trust me, it's going to go all topsy-turvy before we get there. But... Uh, an amazing issue, Billy. Really, you know, it really left us on a serious cliffhanger with Stephen realizing they're going to have to follow this guy through time to prevent him gaining more magical energy. Yeah. So quite quite a way to end it. 
Um, yeah, this issue was great. Um, we'll talk more about our favorite panels and bits of dialogue at the very end when we've discussed issue 14 as well with Mighty Marvel yeah. Mistips and, and Bronze Age Brilliance. But, you know, this this issue is just amazing. It's almost, I, I think it's my favorite of the two because, you know, in the next issue, we, we see that Stephen really, Stephen and Mordo, they don't really have a lot of say in what's happening. They're literally just witnesses. They're like basically like the Watcher tagging along, yeah. you know, riding Galactus's coattails or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there really isn't a whole lot they can do because he's already so powerful. It's There really isn't much they can do to stop what he says he's going to do. <laughs> mm, exactly, yeah. So that brings us to issue 14, the the final issue, right, Billy, of Marvel Premiere, <laughs> and also the issue that wraps up the season egg storyline. And uh, again, another great cover. Wait, before we talk cover... Before I forget, I need to give the specs, right, Billy, of this issue? Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. Marvel Premiere number 14, uh, cover dated March 1974, on sale December the 11th, 1973. Okay, mm-hmm. again, like we mentioned earlier, 20 cents, cover price, page count 32, edited by Roy Thomas, cover art by Frank Brunner. Okay, so the title is just Seizing Egg Genesis, just like they teased in the previous issue. Um, and writer Steve Englehart, penciled again by Frank Brenner, inked by Dick Giordano, mm-hmm. who I also always associate with DC. But yeah, he, he inked for Marvel for 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 quite quite a bit there in the seventies, right, Billy? And yeah. then lettered by John Constanza, colorist Galenis Ween. All right, and again, mm-hmm. you can find this in the same paperbacks we mentioned before: a separate reality trade paperback, Essential Doctor Strange Volume Two, and the Marvel Masterworks uh, Volume Five. Okay, so the synopsis is as follows. Pursuing his foes, seizing Egg and Baron Mordo through time, Stephen emerges in jolly old England in the Arthurian era, where seizing Egg is planning to absorb the magic of the wizard Merlin. To keep Stephen busy, seizing Egg threatens the life of a local knight by materializing a monstrous dragon, which, <laughs> <laughs> which Stephen then engages in battle. Saving the knight, who introduces himself as Lancelot Dulac, the Sorcerer Supreme laments the fact that his magic is continually being drained by the very presence of Seizing Egg, who feeds off of magical energies to boost his already immeasurable power. Another time jump is initiated to an even more distant era, where Seizing Egg seeks to leech the powers of the Sorcerer Priests of the evil twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Straight from the Bible, folks. Uh, which in turn causes their destruction. Stephen tags along on yet another time jaunt to the age of the dinosaurs, where an old foe of Stephen, recently actually fought by Stephen, reigns supreme. I'll, I'll save him for when we do the actual discussion, right, Billy? Uh-huh. And leeching off of this old foe's magic, Seizing Egg banishes the chthonic monstrosity to another dimension. And now he has become near godlike in power. Stephen realizes that Neg's ultimate purpose is to recreate the universe to become God and is shunted along on a final journey, journey to the beginning of time itself, the Big Bang. And demoted to the role of mere spectators, Stephen and Mordo observe the second creation of the universe, or possibly the first, which would make Neg the literal creator of all that is. Hurtling forward to escape the destructive forces of Genesis, Stephen and the catatonic Mordo emerge in New York, just in time to ring in the new year 
1974. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here, right, Billy? <laughs> But yes. Before we get to that, <laughs> you know, reading the synopsis, no, this might be my favorite issue. I, I'm just, I'm vacillating back and forth here. But yeah, number 13 was was pretty amazing. But yeah, this this has so many implications. Maybe maybe 14 should be my favorite. But we'll get to that. Let's talk about the cover first. Billy, what did you think of this uh, yet another awe-inducing cover of Brunner? Oh, I love it. I, I can't say it's better for me than 13, but it's they're pretty much even. I, I love this cover a lot. I mean, you really get a sense of you know dread and menace with CC uh, Neg, although it says Cagliostro on the cover, mm. um, uh, looming over not only just Steven, but... You know, it looks like the Earth and the universe, like he's getting ready to just obliterate everything. It's a great cover. If you saw this cover, you know, you were buying comics in the 1970s. You walked up to a rack. You're buying this comic. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would have thought that they would have uh, done away with the Cagliostro name by now since the previous mm -hmm. issue, you know, Uh, basically told us that he's not Cagliostro, but yet the cover still features the name. Cagliostro, Master of Menace, Conqueror of the Cosmos, Death at the Dawn of Time. <laughs> so I'm thinking they should have replaced that with CZ Neg by this time. Yeah. But let's talk a bit about, I mean, this cover's obviously awesome. It harkens back to some Ditko, um, you know, esque effects, right? Billy, you've got those weird planets. One of the plan planets has sort of the anomaly rue on it. And, uh, you know, then you've got um, these space effects of other dimensional, you know, energy floating around. But you've also mm -hmm. got, like you say, the Gene Cole and Roy Thomas energy emanating from CZ Neg, which is sort of like lightning-esque, uh, sort of like a surge of electrical power, but it's it's mystical in origin. And then you've got this twinkle effect again that I love from Brunner around Steven's hand <laughs> as he's getting ready mm -hmm. to cast a spell. And um, look at Steven's cape. Uh, wow, that's a great cape. He drew... Oh, it's awesome. Brunner, again, draws an awesome cape. Almost, I mean, not as elaborate as Starlin. I think Starlin goes a little bit over the top when he does Steven's cape, right? <laughs> With those uh -huh. folds upon endless folds. But, you know, Brunner does a great cape. And um, so Steven's perfectly drawn, as Brunner always is one to do with him. But then you've got CZ Neg himself. I want to talk a bit about his appearance, right, Billy? He's got this... Uh, bald head with this headband and then he's got this um, high collar sort of um, hearkening back to guys like Damon Hellstrom's look or, or Dracula from Tomb of Dracula also got like um, Iron Fist you know has that high very high collar um, but then you know he's got this weird garb it's got an infinity symbol on it right around the, the navel And then this thing splits and, and shows CZ Neg's uh, chest, but then it, it kind of looks like some atomic bands or something uh, wrapped around his shoulder. You know, uh, this is a weird futuristic getup, obviously from the 31st century. What do you think about this CZ Neg's yeah. look? It looks pretty wild, and he's got a headband on too. But if you take the headband away and just look at the, uh, him from the neck up, doesn't it remind you of Dead Man? Yes, yes, as penciled by Neil Adams, Dead Man from yeah. Strange Adventures. Yeah, of course, from the DC. Oh, I love that character. Oh, I love <laughs> I Dead Man. Like Boston Brand. Like he, he does yeah. look like Dead Man. He does. <laughs> Damn, yeah. Another... Yeah, I do like how, like, all the, you know, you were mentioning about all the different colors in the cover and stuff like that. Again, Brunner just, I don't know. It this I don't know if you have credits for the colorist on the cover, 
I'm assuming it was Brunner because he did pencils and inks, and I think he did a lot of the coloring too, even sometimes interiors, but on his covers as well. I can't find any information to say that it wasn't him. But, um, yeah, like behind, uh, not Cagliostro, uh, CC Neg is, you know, uh, almost like a lightning effect are all around him mm. and behind him, like a, a, a navy blue, like you would think when you look at a night sky full of stars, but then underneath the dock's cape is purple with this lightning effect underneath it. And it's just, oh, it's a gorgeous cover. Brunner is just, he's the man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then this is an amazing cover. Yeah, I'm assuming he did the colors. It does look a little bit different than the interior colors, you know, but, you know, I might be wrong there. But normally Brunner did his own colors. You know, he did yeah. inking, he did everything. It's kind of like a John Byrne when it came to that, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, but like we say, we get most of our into well, I get most of my information on the specs from Mike's Amazing World, and they just created the cover artist as Frank Brunner. So I'm assuming that includes inking and everything. You know, normally they do credit the inker if there's a different guy inking it. Yeah. Uh, but it might be Glennis Ween, but I doubt it. You know, I'm, at this point in time, I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, so Billy, I forgot who was the colorist on issue 13 for the interiors because um, the it was Frank. It was Frank. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's that's the information. Well, I didn't have that information, but it just says art by Frank Brenner on the interiors. Yeah. And then just the inker, but it didn't have the colorist. So, yeah, Frank. So, you know, that's no wonder he took so long to finish an issue or even a cover sometimes because yeah. he really puts... He does everything. He's like a one-man band. Yeah, um, you figure if normally somebody does a cover, a lot of times, especially even back then, it was, you know, somebody would pencil, then they'd hand off to an inker, then he'd hand off to a colorist. So if you're doing all those things, like, that's kind of why I figure it's like, I won't ever, you know, view Brunner in a negative light for not being able to keep up with a monthly book because, you know, yeah, he did get, you know, his <clears throat> interiors inked by, like, you know, Krusty Bunkers or, you know, from this issue on until he finishes it's all Dick Giordano, uh, which yeah. is great, too. He's a great inker for him, too. But, you know, he still did a lot. You know, you figure he's doing pencils, inks, colors for the cover and doing pencils. And then, you know, yeah, colors sometimes even for interiors. That's a lot. That's right. No, 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 that's right. He, he did do a lot there. Um, so, you know, no wonder. I don't I don't begrudge the guy that the, or blame him no. for the fact that he slowed down. And, you know, we know that that is basically the reason why he quit the the main the Doctor Strange Volume Two after issue six because um it was going monthly then and mm-hmm. um you know it was impossible for him to keep up with the workload um but you know he still made a pretty good life doing commercial art yeah. and just covers and and commissions and so you know this guy is so talented that you know he doesn't need to do a regular book <laughs> yeah I mean he's one of those guys too where I feel bad for him because I just don't think back then people realized how great he was and appreciated him as much as they should have whereas now you know he's got a pretty big following cult following whatever you want to call Mm. it you know but you know it's just i think if you know more people back then would have been clamoring for his work you know he would have probably done more work but you know it's it's there was a lot of competition back then think about it marvel had you know people like him and jim starlin and all these great guys that they could lean on for yeah, yeah. Covers and interiors and stuff like that. So maybe that was why, too, he kind of stepped aside. I think you're right. I think Marvel sort of preferred the guys back then who could go faster, you know, like John Buscema, yeah. Sal Buscema, his brother, 
uh, you know, you had yep. Gil Kane. They they were very fast. I'm not saying their work suffered because of that. They it was still great. It was still highly detailed. But it's just the, their style of of, of drawing, you know, uh, is comes from an era where you know you they learned to to do art like kind of from that era from Jack Kirby where you go very fast. Yeah. Colin is another one. Colin <laughs> could could do a lot very quickly, but still highly detailed and really well done. But Brunner likes to take his time. You know, so uh, Barry Windsor Smith is another one. You know, he he could go really fast if he he penciled in the Kirby style, but actually, when he does his own style, which developed later on, he goes slower. You know, so mm -hmm. it depends. You know, on the artist. Uh, not every artist is super quick, um, and and it's not always the case that quick artists, you know, turn in crappy art. It's just that's just mm -hmm. not the case. I mean, just look at Kirby. Every single one of his, if you look at his pencil. His pencil pages, you know, these original pencil pages, it's so highly detailed. But he turned yeah. out like, what, eight pages a week, sometimes more. You know, yeah, I mean, so. to me, he's Kirby's always the anomaly. He's never the standard. And I just think to myself, I would rather get less work from somebody like Brunner than have twice as much output as he did in this era. And it was hurried, mm. you know. Yeah. I, I would much rather have what we have uh, than... Oh, like hurry up, Frank! And he was like, "Okay, I'm yeah. glad he didn't actually compromise his his work, uh, you know, the way yeah. he did work, and just said, okay, 'Okay, I'm good.'" I know what you mean, Billy. I don't know about you, but I'm talking about modern comics, um, which I still sporadically read every now and then. I'm I've long since um, gotten off being one of those guys who complain about you know comics being late or or not being available monthly you know like for instance the most recent series i can think of is um jonathan hickman's east of west you know where mm -hmm. i i love that title so much i i read it religiously but then it it started you know lagging behind um publishing schedules and so forth and it it, it took months for an issue to come out but i didn't mind because i know when the issue came out it's going to be great you know, yeah. so I maybe when I was younger, you know, I, I really cared about that kind of thing. But now I'm I don't I'm like whenever the guys can put it out, I'm I'm just happy to have it. I just don't like it if, if something completely disappears and, and, and it didn't wrap itself up. You know, that's something that I, I don't like. But, you know, that doesn't happen often. Mm -hmm. um, but still, you know, I don't mind. So, you know, I never cared about that much. I just want it, you know, uh, when I get it and then, you know, I'm, I'll be happy with it. But of course, that means you sometimes have to reread previous material to to get back on track, right, with the story and so forth. But Billy, yep. yeah, and this comic man, it, it immediately uh, opens up, you know, uh, Marvel Premiere 14 with Steven, you know, um, with his great splash panel with Steven's just standing there in it. And the title of the splash panel is The Book of Revelations. So uh -huh. the, the Book of Revelations being the final book of the Bible and Genesis mm -hmm. being the first... So that kind of tells you something already here, Billy. There's going to be an ending, but uh -huh. the ending is going to lead to a beginning, right? Which is kind of what Cezanek wants to do. He wants to go back to the beginning and redo everything, recreate everything. So that ends our universe effectively, if you think about it, which is the book of Revelations, which is the end of the world, right? Yeah. So that's an apt title for me there. And then you've got these two gargoyles that Brenner is so good at drawing. <laughs> We've had a yeah. gargoyle in, in, in issue 12, fighting Stephen and Lilia. We've had a, you know, gargoyles before drawn by Brenner. This this is just another, you know, bonus for Brenner to draw two more. Mm -hmm. and then, yeah, and what are those mm -hmm. supposed to be like? Two, uh, like, 
fire pits or something. Oh yeah, on that the, the gargoyles are on top uh, of yeah, braziers. Like, yeah, yeah. Fire pits. Don't yeah, don't say brazier. Dear God, let's not go down that yeah, road again. Yeah, we said that before in a previous episode. <laughs> Ooh, what are we thinking of? Adrian get... Barbeau in a brazier. Anyway. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, but yeah, the fire coming out of them, yeah. and there's like little skulls all along the bottom. Oh, they're incredible! Yeah, that's right. That that's a great splash panel, but it has absolutely nothing <laughs> to do with the interiors, right? Which is the previous no. issue. The splash panel does have something to do with it, but this one, not at all. This yeah. is just a bit of hey, free Brunner art. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost reminded me of you know there were a couple of issues here and there, and I don't know why Marvel did this, but they would put a splash page in an issue of a totally different artist and then the rest of the book was somebody else like i can think of there's an issue of i think it might be issue number one of son of satan when he got his own uh series where they put this really funky cool splash page you know as soon as you open the book and it's jim starlin but then you turn the page and the rest of the book is the regular artist and that kind of reminded me of this i kind of looked at this when i first saw it and probably because of the giordano inks but like when i first saw this i didn't know any better because you know I wasn't really up on, you know, artists and stuff like that, but it almost reminded me of a Starlin image, like the way the doc's face looks, especially. Yeah, it it is a little bit Starlin-esque now that you mention it. I, <laughs> I think I know what you mean. I recently reread The Son of Satan, and I I kind of I think I know which page you mean. Um, I think it's a sh- yeah. I'm not sure though. It might be. It might be. We'll we'll check on that, listeners, and let you know. But yeah, they they <laughs> sometimes did that. Not very often though. But, um, you know, if they needed a, a page, a filler page or something, or sometimes the editors weren't happy with the page turned in by the regular artist and they couldn't redraw it yeah. for some reason because of scheduling. Mm-hmm. So they asked another artist to redraw it. That that was not common practice, but that uh, sometimes happened. Sometimes, yeah. yeah, sometimes. But, you know, um, still, Brunner and Starlin had, in some cases, very similar styles. You know what I mean, Billy? Mm-hmm. In some poses, yeah. in some... You know, uh, not the art itself, but, you know, the way they sometimes framed a shot. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, especially when they dealt with stuff like magic or space or, you know, not that not that Starlin often did magic, you know, which is Brenner is known for always doing fantasy and magic. Starlin's more known for doing science fiction type panels. But, you know, Warlock, Adam Warlock, his um, run on Adam Warlock for me was not a lot of science all the time. You know, there was a lot of mystical stuff going on there. Kind yeah. of, you know, with the soul gem and the spiritual side of of the Marvel uh, cosmic universe. So, you know, um, they've, they've, I always put those guys in the same, you know, kind of league a little bit. Starlin and uh, and uh, Brunner, at least in the early mm-hmm. 70s. You know, later on, Starlin, yeah. his style developed. No, not, I mean, not really developed, but he did more superhero type, you know, stories. Especially mm-hmm. when, when he went over to D.C., but you know that's beside the point. It does look like a Starlin image. <laughs> Long story short, yeah. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that next page, I mean, wow. Oh my it's god. It's just just the panel layouts are incredible. Like you get these three triangular well, four triangular shaped and they kind of get bigger as mm. you go from top to bottom. Oh, mm. they're incredible. And then Mordo right away trying to be a little like butt smoocher. Yeah, like let me help okay. you. Let me serve you. <laughs> yeah, he says, but but uh, he yeah he really like you know uh, damages Mordo's <laughs> ego there. He says, CZNX says, you know neither you strange nor Mordo matter to me. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, Mordo, but wait, I can help you, serve you, and then Stephen, 
Silas, evil one. I will not allow it. <laughs> so these are like um, the the kids fighting amongst each other, and the the parent, you know, standing at the playground just looking on and says, "Yeah, play nice, children." <laughs> mm -hmm. He doesn't even say that though. He just doesn't care. He just reiterates it. He says, "As I said, you two do not matter. I am all that matters." <laughs> Man, can you imagine, Stephen? He's usually the one talking down to people like that. I wonder how he feels with somebody doing that to him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's completely powerless. Mordor and Stephen, not once do they even attempt to attack CZ Neg because they realize that it's fruitless. You know, they just the, the yeah. only weapons they have against him is their reason. They're trying to convince him to change his ways. But, you know, CZ Neg is kind of like a kid with this power too, right, Billy? Because he conjures up a dragon mm -hmm. to menace this knight simply to test the magical energies that he's absorbed in this era, which presumably comes from Merlin. And then Stephen, you know, begs CZ Neg to intervene, to not let this dragon devour this knight. And then uh, CZ Neg says, no, he, he's, he won't do anything, but you may struggle, right, Stephen? You may... <laughs> you know, tried to intervene. So that's kind of like the God of the Bible a little bit, if you think about it. Like, he will intervene up to a point, but after that, it's up to you, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, he's kind of like getting, uh, he's uh, practicing already for his uh, his new role. Godhood, yeah. He's practicing <laughs> to be a, be a bastard, really. <laughs> because, I mean, he's think about it. Around. It's very similar. Like, he conjures up a threat. He creates the situation, creates the rules, creates the board game. Then he lets the threat play itself out. And, you know, when the, the innocent suffering or the weaker is going to be devoured, he doesn't lend a hand. He just lets it play out as it will. That's kind of similar to, to biblical, you know, um, uh, mythology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Brunner and Engelhardt here, they're really putting down on paper <laughs> how they feel. Yeah. You know, the the... I shouldn't say the the world view of religion, but many uh, religions of the world view things as, you know, having an omnipotent God and then what happens, you know, in the daily lives of people mm. is, is their own to make of it, yeah. you know, good or bad. So that they're really, you could tell they're really trying to, not overtly, but, you know, trying to just give you scenarios to let you know how they feel about, you know, probably most religions in general. Yeah, and it's I'm, not bad or anything like that. It's no, not they're no. not like attacking anything or being uh, malicious about it. They're just saying kind of like basically, hey, here's how we kind of feel about it, and you know, yeah, make yeah. your own conclusion. Yeah, which the, is great. I like it. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's uh, open for interpretation. There's lots to be like I said in the beginning unpacked from this issue. But um, I'm thinking, you know, but yeah, this is their commentary on monotheistic uh, religions. You know, belief in one mm -hmm. God. I think. Yeah. Um, similar to Jehovah or let's say Allah or someone like that. Because mm -hmm. um, this God in, embodied by Sisi Neg, he's definitely acting very aloof and, um, uh, you know, indifferent when it comes to what what he's effecting in this world, you know. So you're, you're mm -hmm. right. He's sort of gearing up to become the monotheistic kind of gods that we are used to, you know. So... Um, then, you know, again, they, they fail to sort of sway him, except Mordo does score some points. He says, you know, <laughs> Stephen saved Lancelot, but according to history, which is not history at all, this is total, you know, medieval <laughs> fiction. According to history, Lancelot will end up seducing Queen Guinevere and that will lead to the destruction of Camelot. So humans are scum. 
That's what he's saying. <laughs> That's his reasoning. So he's saying, uh -huh. you should destroy all of them and recreate everything. And I will be there to help you, to assist you. And then Cezanek ponders this, right? And then he takes Mordo with him. So Stephen has actually lost in the battle of reason against these two nutcases. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we, we're, um, now we're getting straight into stuff from the Bible, right, Billy? Because the next oh, time... Oh, this is job, hilarious. Yeah, this takes them to <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, my good God. <laughs> Sorry. This pun is totally intended. Um, now, Cezanek is so powerful now after absorbing Merlin's magic that he's just become this floating head, similar to, you know, Firestorm's Dr. Martin Stein. You know, he's floating in the air above mm -hmm. Mordo. And they're above Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, you know, he shows them these decadent, you know, rituals and priests dancing and doing these um, demonic rites and so forth to gain power. And he calls it sin and degradation. But you know, according Stephen has a good point. He says, but you don't know these people. According to you, they're enacting sin, but they might think this is totally normal, which is sort of a commentary on that, right, Billy? I mean, if you think about it, yeah. in the Bible, sex with, you know, lots of different partners is a sin. But in certain religions, it's not a sin. It's standard right. practice, right? So, so polygamy, yeah, polygamy, yeah. So, based on of of your perspective, uh, or your worldview, or how you were raised, sins might be up for interpretation, right? They might be malleable. They might be misunderstood even by people from another religion. So, Stephen yeah. makes that point. You know, he says that you can't just destroy these cities because Cezanex says he wants to destroy these two cities, much like God in the Bible destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, mm -hmm. right? So oh, yeah. um, Stephen's trying to convince him not to do this. And then, you know, um, Season X says, okay, let's see what these people are really like. And it turns out these people are kind of scum, right? They're, they're kind they're of crazy. scum. Yeah. Because <laughs> as soon as the three materialize in the streets of Sodom and Gomorrah, these people like stick out their tongues at them. They insult them. They're like, you know, I'm just happy that they didn't, they, they want to rape these guys or something because that happened in the Bible a couple of times, right? People, oh, there's an angel. Let's rape them. <laughs> That's kind of something that sometimes happens in the Bible, you know? And so. then these, all oh, the dialogue. You got Dr. Strange. Cece Neg is drunk on power. His arrogance <laughs> has destroyed his plan before it began. And then all of a sudden you get this guy, Tong, let the mighty gong summon the priests of death. And then the guy says, annihilate the strangers. Let your wands sear the flesh from their bones. And they all have these. They look like ninja. Yeah. And they all have these, like, uh, it's like a wand of sorts, but it has like a, not an obelisk. Pyramid. What would you say on the a top pyramid, of it? A pyramidal shape on the top. Yeah, pyramid. <laughs> and it starts, like, trying to zap the dock. And Mordo and Sissy Neg is standing there, too, and, like, get them all. But uh, the dock whips up the shield of the seraphim and... Yeah, Mordo, help me! And it's like he's really gonna get it, but you know, Cece exactly. Neg gets really pissed off. Now, priest, you shall do nothing, for you have succeeded in angering me. <laughs> you have angered God, and he zaps the crap out of all of them and kills them. Yeah, he kills I love them. that panel too, black and white. They just do a black and white panel that looks really neat. Yeah. yeah, he murders every one of them. It's amazing. It's almost like his mystical aspect appears above his head in the form of these two giant eyes and a brow and these eyes mm -hmm. above Cezanex's head just laser these priests to death. 
But, you know, Billy, you know, speaking about those little wands, they remind me of the wand of Starman from the DC Universe. You know, the original Starman oh, from the yeah. All-Star Squadron and from the Justice Society yeah. way back when. He, the, those wands are very similar to Starman's wand. And they've even got little buttons, which Starman's wand had, you know, like on, on the yeah. side of them, except for yep. the shape of the head, which is a little bit different. It's like a pyramid shape. But yeah, he just obliterates these guys. And then his um, giant face hangs above the city and sort of like uses those lightning bolt effects that we mentioned earlier that mm-hmm. Brunner draws so well to just destroy the, the entire city. And the only way Mordo and Steven survive is by encasing themselves in these bubbles. You yeah. Know, these force force bubbles. And then we've got the biblical scene of the <laughs> these two people... Lot and his wife, presumably, leaving the destroyed cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, um, Lot even says to his wife, no, don't look back. We must put our time of wickedness from our minds and forget there were ever such cities as Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it seems Stephen only realizes that it was Sodom and Gomorrah at that point in time. Because as he listens to these people saying the names of the cities, Stephen says, Sodom and... Oh, no! (laughs) He realizes that... (laughs) Already, Sizineg has done what God was supposed to have done in the Bible, which means that. What yeah. does this mean? What does this mean, Billy? It means that, like he he has done what he said he was going to do. Like he basically is, you know, already God. God. He hasn't even yeah. he hasn't even you know uh, reenacted Genesis yet, and he's already the actual God. He did what the yeah. actual God did, which could mean, Billy. That in the universe of Marvel, there is no God. It means CZ Neg well, is God, but you yeah. know what I mean? Because he actually, or it could just mean that the real God didn't do what the God in the Bible was supposed to have done. CZ Neg was actually <laughs> doing what the God in the Bible was supposed to have done. Who knows? They might have stopped yeah. off in more timelines, though, to, to actually do that. But Stephen <laughs> sort of realizes that at this point in time. He realizes CZ Neg's already attained Godhood, sort of at least in the mm-hmm. history of, of, of the world. And then yeah. now this is this is just a pure bit of uh, bonus here, right? Um, this oh, is great. <laughs> oh, this is great. The next time jump, folks, uh, they're back in the, well, they're in the dinosaur age, right? Prehistoric times. <laughs> prehistoric yeah. And times. we stand in prehistoric times. <laughs> now there's some serious, you know, um, mistakes here, but, you know, in the Marvel Universe, who knows if it's mistakes? It might, I mean... The Celestials might have been the reason for this. You know, <laughs> there oh, are ape men. <laughs> there are ancient humans, ape men living along with the dinosaurs, like some fundamentalist Christians believe that happened. <laughs> this is great, though. Oh, my gosh. The, the artwork, the dialogue here is great. Yeah, you, at first you just see the dinosaur scene and you think, oh, okay, no problem. And then all of a sudden, Stephen, nonetheless, I, wait, look. And then he goes, those beasts half ape half man fleeing in terror from an unseen menace and then uh season egg silence speak no more of anything related to mankind i wash my hands of them and you and he zaps the dock and then we see here's your boy shumagorath oh yeah the tentacle monstrosity from beyond from cancerverse and it's though it looks incredible too but the only thing that sucks is He's killing these apes. Yeah, he's going to tell he's, he's slaughtering yeah. them. I mean, they're they're hanging lifeless from his limbs. He's not yeah. eating them or anything because he doesn't have a mouth, but he's definitely just slaughtering them, like you know, crushing yeah. them with his giant tentacles. They didn't even, 
I'm thinking, what did they do wrong? Go yeah. kill one of those T-Rexes or something. Yeah. No, he's going to start killing these ape guys for no reason. And they're scared, too. Like, they're running in fear. Like, oh, holy crap. And he just starts grabbing them and crushing them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Crazy. The, you know, this reminded me a bit of um, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, the, the oh, opening, yeah. the opening um, scene and stuff. Because that's how mm-hmm. these ape men are drawn. Except that, you know... Uh, you know, whatever enacts change in their world isn't a giant obelisk or a giant tablet that appears in the ground. This is just Sumagorath <laughs> crawling from the crevices of the earth, just snacking on them or just, just killing them for the, the hell of it. So Stephen, yeah. he tries to do something about this because he realizes that these ape people are the progenitors of the human race. Which which is ridiculous. That we we never coexisted with dinosaurs, but you know, obviously we never coexisted with Sumagorath either. Well, who knows, right? Lovecraft might have been onto something there, who knows? But you know, so <laughs> Stephen attacks what he calls this cosmic horror. But of course his strength is nothing compared to Sumagorath. He even loses cohesion. He loses, you know, the grasp on his physical form there because his magic yeah. is so depleted now, right, Billy? And yeah. then you know, um, Eventually, you know, all the ape men, save for two, are killed. But Seasoneg realizes that he came back into this time to absorb the magic of Sumagorath because Sumagorath is the only source of mystical energy in this time. And then he realizes that to battle Sumagorath might drain a lot of the magic he's already absorbed. So he goes with another tactic. <laughs> he says, okay, I'm going to put Sumagorath to sleep by just leeching off a little bit of the energy at first, right? And then banishing to another dimension, which is presumably the cancer verse, right, Billy? And mm-hmm. uh, oh man, that that's a great bit where he you know enacts this plan to get rid of Shumagorath because Shumagorath would have given him a run for his money, even though he was literally God at this point in time. Now, now, Billy, yeah. the, the first biblical reference here was when he shouts at Stephen and says, "Silence! I wash my hands of you." You know, kind of like Pontius Pilate did in the New Testament <laughs> with Jesus, right? So yeah, yeah. Stephen is a kind of a Jesus here because he's going to be sort of, well, he's going to have to sacrifice something at one point in time. But yeah. then, you know, after all these ape men are killed by Shumagorath, there's only two left alive, <laughs> actually. Uh, yeah. Suddenly, Seasoneg has this 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 um, brief uh, surge of, of, what would you call it, like kindness. He's feeling yeah. uh, philanthropic. Mm-hmm. And he creates an Eden for these last two A people to live in. An act of creation. A spontaneous yeah. act of creation. A garden. Yeah, garden a garden for the Eden. two yeah. For the two surviving <laughs> Who are Adam and Eve at this point in time. Yeah, and there's apparently. even a check it, there's even a, a tree and an apple hanging from a tree. The forbidden fruit. I was gonna say is, is there a serpent somewhere around here <laughs> slithering around too? <laughs> oh god oh man this yeah is they great. went they went full on here man like i've said in the past yeah back then people got upset by this but looking back at it now it's just it's this them you know Engelhart and brunner kind of throwing it out there saying you know here are some things to think about and you know like i said i i'm glad they did this story because it's it's not like they're not trying to uh lure someone away from their beliefs or anything like that they're just saying like hey man like, there are a lot of things to think about, you know, and how about checking out this story? You know, we wrote a story and drew a story that we thought was cool. And, you know, maybe not everything is as you think it is, you know. So just definitely just take a look at stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is a classic what if scenario, right, Billy? Like, what mm-hmm. if the God from the Bible, the God that we've been worshiping, 
was actually a sorcerer from the distant future who lived backward in time like Merlin and went to the beginning of time and recreated the universe. But as he did so, he stopped over in brief periods and, and enacted these, you know, godlike events that we that we attributed to God. <laughs> so what if basically God was a sorcerer from the 31st century? That's this what if scenario. So it's brilliant. It's not to say that that's the way it really happened. So, you know, folks getting upset about no. this kind of thing is totally uncalled for. It's just like, you know, kind of like we, we mentioned Kubrick. What if God was an alien? You know, that's kind of the thing. That's kind of Jack Kirby's whole thing. You know, what if God was an alien, you know, like in the, the Eternals, uh, you know, and, and with the Celestials and all of that? You know, it's mm -hmm. just, um, I mean, just another way to interpret, you know, what this, we don't know, you know, about the creation of the universe and, and, and all yeah. of that. So, you know, this, they, they make the reader think. There's no harm in, in making you think. This is definitely not no. browbeating you with their religion no. or their beliefs. They're nope. not trying to not indoctrinate. No. So nope. I, I'm, I'm thinking anything that can cause a dialogue like this must be good, you know, just to question. Yeah, yeah but we should always question, especially if there's no evidence or proof we should keep questioning you know and, yeah and i mean um, let's let's be honest here how many you know all, all religions are faith-based in the end anyway you know yes some are rooted in some historical fact but in the end like most of them are face faith-based anyway so it's not it's not like it's you know they're trying to like i said uh dismantle something and you know create you know they're not pulling like an l ron hubbard here and trying to like create their own religion in a comic book they're just trying to like you know exactly. say like you know hey mm. here's a story it's a, you know we think it's a good story you'd like to read it and it's it's a in the end it's a comic book i mean come on here man this yeah. is not like it just blows my mind that people got upset about this but you know of course i wasn't even this was 1974 so this is a year before i was born so yeah i can't say what the the climate was back then from uh you know actual experience but just from what you know my mom or whoever would yeah, say yeah. but it's just you know it's people getting upset about that i just look back and i think wow man really first and foremost it's a comic book it's not like it's you know they wrote a a manifesto to try to pass out to people to like i said you know change them from you know christianity or buddhism yeah. or anything else to say this is how it really is it's not what they were doing no so that's not what they were doing my mind. but you yeah, see that's about yeah it. that's yeah. definitely not what they were doing but yeah you know like you say the people got upset about it um and it's, it's different crazy. from something like the exorcist if you think about it the exorcist is very i mean some people see it as very blasphemous but actually the exorcist what it is is it is a a um, a, a validation of the power of Christianity, if you think about it, Billy, because the rituals that they, they enact, Father Marin and Father Carrick, right, in the movie The Exorcist, mm -hmm. they work to an extent. At the very end, they don't completely work in the way they wanted them to work, but the priest kind of wins. He sacrifices his own life, but he saves the innocent girl and kills the demon. Pazuzu, yeah. sort of, because mm -hmm. by taking him into his own body and leaping out of the window. So what it is, is, I mean, Father Karras um, he lost his faith uh, in the movie, but then he regains it right before right. he kills the demon. So it's sort of like a validation of the power of Christianity, whereas this is not. You know, so a lot of religious people love The Exorcist. They love to watch it because it's sort of like, hey, you know, my, my religion does have power. It does have, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas a lot of people hated the movie like Rosemary's Baby, whereas in the end it was seen that the Satanists won because the Antichrist was born. You know what I mean? The same with the Omen. So this is kind of like falling. Yeah, this is kind of like falling in the Omen kind of 
uh, or, or in Rosemary's Baby, that kind of, um, uh, you know, field. Because this is not, it doesn't give a validation of Christianity at the very end, saying that, oh, they beat it with the powers of Christ. <laughs> you know, this is sort of, so I can yeah, see this... why people got upset about it. Because, and, and yeah. Mordo keeps swearing by Satanish <laughs> the whole time, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time he gets like a little, uh, you know, nervous about something or a little shaken by anything he always says that he's always I say tannish I'm like listen to this nut <laughs> oh you would be better off swearing by Dormammu at this point in time because Satanish is a, a kind of a wimp <laughs> compared to the other guys yeah. these guys have dealt with but you know I can see why some you know uh, religious minded people would be offended especially parents seeing kids re uh, you know reading this kind of thing but then you know, yeah. um, you know, uh, I think we've we've uh, beaten this dead horse, uh, you know, uh, as much as we can. Believe people will always be upset. They always find something to, to uh, yeah. you know, criticize or to become you know uh, salty about. So in this case, though, I mean, as the comic progresses, there's some scientists who might be upset with this, you know, believe not just religious people <laughs> yeah, because that's true. As they're going back in time, we see some stuff that's definitely not, you know in in the vein of you know what what we understand about how stars are formed or the cosmos what what Brenner and Engelhardt is saying that as time reverses itself Stephen and Mordo witnesses planets being absorbed back into the sun <laughs> now this is not actually how planets are born the sun doesn't spew forth planets <laughs> from its energy you know it, its gravity collects you know, stuff like stardust and uh, other particles and asteroids and meteors around it and then shapes it into planets. But it doesn't actually come from the center of the sun itself. <laughs> Good but, panel, though. Good yeah, page. it's a great panel. It's a great panel. I mean, this might not be the sun. This might be the actual primal energy that was released by the Big Bang. But they call it a sun. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah but they, That's what I think know, it, they really meant. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so so who cares? You know, this is the Marvel Universe stuff has happened you know, this might be eternity <laughs> farting for all we know, you know. I mean, the actual <laughs> personage of eternity <laughs> taking huge fart. We don't know because, I mean, this doesn't operate on our universe's laws. So who am I to, like, nitpick about this? But then again, just before the universe blinks out of existence, there's this, or recreates itself to the point of the Big Bang. There's, again, this little sparkling effect that Brunner draws. <laughs> and then it says the the sun itself implodes, folds in upon itself and goes out. And they just hang in darkness. Stark darkness reigns. And then we have a ver the, the controversial panel here, whereas you know, Stephen shines the Eye of Agamotto, and then the light of the Eye of Agamotto reveals this great panel of Seasonek's face, which mm -hmm. I can only describe as like wisps of energy hanging downwards, falling, f uh, forming the face of Seasonek with these stars for, for eyes. And then he in fact, becomes the Big Bang. He, he becomes the, the, the pinprick of pinpoint of matter or, or, or gas that existed and then exploded into the Big Bang. He himself becomes the universe, right, Billy? Mm -hmm. And that is a great panel with his face being the center of it all, being the center of this Big Bang, this explosion, just releasing this energy. So at this point in time, we know that the universe has been recreated by Seizing Egg. And, uh -huh. and Stephen has failed, you know, um, in, in what he has set out to do, which is to convince Seizing Egg not to do this. But then, luckily for them, right, Billy, this is very, 
very um you know well this is an insane <laughs> amount of fortune for them yeah <laughs> Cezinek understands that the universe that he has come from is perfect in every way so you can't improve on perfection even the flaws of humankind are perfect in a way <laughs> mm-hmm. because yeah so he 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 doesn't want to recreate the universe in in a new image and he wants to in fact just recreate it the way it's always been because that is perfection <laughs> so mm-hmm. he in fact does create a universe anew but it's the it's exactly the way as it was before yeah so this itself has serious implications too billy because then think about it now Stephen and Mordo are being hurled forward through time by this Big Bang explosion. And they, in fact, emerge just in time to ring in the new year of 1974. Because as we know, this comic was released on, you know, in December 1973. So mm-hmm. this is very apropos. This is very apt when it's re- when, when they enter the world, the new world again. This is now the new year of 1974. But it's not just ringing in the new year, right, for them Billy, it's ringing in a whole new universe for yeah, Stephen and Mordo. Yeah. And Mordo is so, you know, <laughs> upset about witnessing the beginning of the universe that he's now in, in a comatose state. His mind mm-hmm. is gone. He's gone insane. Kind of like, you know, a Lovecraftian protagonist witnessing one of those Cthulhu monsters. You know, he's now, you know, completely out of it. And then Stephen looks down from the top of this allied chemical building or something right where he stands and uh he he looks on the celebrations of the new year happy new year 1974 and steven himself is a little bit crazy at this point because he they say there at the end he just laughs and laughs and laughs right so he's gone a little bit insane too by having witnessed (laughs) all of this right billy so, and then we end the comic by them saying that, okay, this is the end of Marvel premiere and look forward to Doctor Strange and his own mag once again. But, Billy, what an ending, man. Well, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think there was, you know, we're going to talk here about how there was some blowback, um, specifically that Stan Lee had gotten wind of, and he was going to not let them write this story. Yeah. You know, you know this, you know this story. He was mm, he was mm, going to mm. say no, you, he mm. or he did say no, you can't do this. And then, you know, what was Engelhart's response to that? <laughs> well, um I mean, they couldn't directly challenge Stan Lee up at that point, I think, um because Stan's word was law. I mean, they could try, but they might find themselves being replaced later on, right? But what mm. what Engelhart did was quite brilliant. Well, actually, <laughs> I mean, both of them, Brunner and Engelhart concocted this this quite brilliant little stratagem of theirs. Um I think as the story goes, Steve Engelhardt was at a convention or something in Texas. And mm-hmm. then he, they decided to, you know, because Stan was so worried about the religious readers and being offended by the story, they decided to write a letter from a fictional minister called Reverend Billingsley. <laughs> <laughs> they should have made it Reverend Lovejoy. Oh, fun, wait a oh man. Oh, <laughs> that would have given, him a, given it away. Well, you never know. Stan might have thought, hey... <laughs> But uh, a phone. <laughs> oh man, that would have been brilliant. Oh, preserved in formaldehyde. But um, <laughs> one those reverends always ended up uh, doing mm-hmm. something kooky. So they wrote this phony letter. Uh, Steve Steve Engelhard did from this imaginary Baptist minister, Reverend Billingsley, 
um, saying that a boy in his parish showed him this Doctor Strange comic. So obviously, this comic had already been published, uh, Billy, I think, at this point in time. Stanley only got wind of it afterwards because as per Brenner and Engelhardt's admission, they didn't really get a lot of editorial, you know, intervention really. You know, they, yeah. they, they, because they, that's why they picked Doctor Strange as a title because not a lot of people were looking at the title as much as they were looking at Fantastic yeah. Four, Spider-Man or Avengers. So mm -hmm. they could basically do what they wanted. But after the comic book was published, Stan did get a wind of this and he ordered them to, to post a retraction of the story, to recant the story. Yeah. And yeah. to say that it wasn't really God, Nick wasn't really God, but they, of course, wanted to leave that open for interpretation. So, of course, Werner and Ingerlard wouldn't want to do this. So they con uh, concocted this letter from Reverend Billingsley saying that a, a student in his parish showed him the comic and he loved it. He loved this interpretation. He says, yes, religion should be open to interpretation. It's wonderful. You know, and then the Stanley got shown the letter that was sent into the Marvel offices and he loved it. And he, in fact, said, forget the denial and print this letter instead. <laughs> print it in the letter <laughs> column. So uh, they were astounded and pleased and, you know, that that worked. And that's why they kept the issue as is. You know, they didn't have to you know, post a, an apology. Yeah, so, I mean, Marvel yeah. has played with this you know, on and off again in the Bronze Age, you know, even into the Copper Age of, you know, should we or shouldn't we have, you know, uh, a depiction of God or, you know, the actual Satan in our comics? And, you know, mm. you and I know that early in Ghost Rider, it was Satan, and then it later got changed to Mephisto. Because yeah. they kind of, yeah, they eventually decided they didn't really want to play in that realm. But who was it that had the character? wasn't, didn't a character that was supposed to be like God show up in the Defenders? Who wrote that? It wasn't Gerber, but somebody wrote one. Well, wasn't David Anthony Kraft maybe um, writing? It could that, have been, or, yeah, yeah or James Mateus or somebody. It was later on, but somebody did. <clears throat> yeah, you know, there was a lot of back and forth at Marvel with whether you should or shouldn't do it, and then they would try to have somebody later on write something to be like, no, 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 that really wasn't God or the devil or whatever. But yeah, I just feel like, hey, man, it's comic books. Write what you want to write. It didn't, you know, back then I understand, but like nowadays it's a little more free, but I felt like, ah, come on, it's a comic. Just let them write as what they want to write. Yeah. If there's a little bit of blowback about something, then so be it. But yeah, I, as long as it, I don't feel ever any of these guys in the Bronze Age did anything, you know, in bad taste. No, I, I don't I feel agree. they ever really did. I agree. I agree. No, no, no. They, they were very con uh, conscious of the kind of zeitgeist of the time. So they would be very careful with what they wrote. They didn't want to cause too much trouble because after all, it would mean their jobs for yeah. one. So they tried to get with, away with it on a more subtle level. Right, Billy? Mm -hmm. But, but yeah. not too overt, not to offend too many people. But this came very close. This came very close. But in fact, it didn't offend too many people. You know, after they printed that letter... And, uh, and a lot of people, in fact, praised this story. I, and, and in fact, I mean, this is not the story that I associate with Brenner the most, um, but people do. This is the most famous story apparently out there in the in the in the comic fandom that people associate mm -hmm. Brenner with the most, uh, which yeah. is the CZNX story. They always ask him about it in interviews and everything. So. Um, you know, um, I'm thinking it worked and, and it played out well for them. And they were obviously also a bit lucky with Stan, you know, jumping on board after. But I think they played Stan at this point in time a little bit, you know, because he was already not writing Spider-Man anymore. He was already just being the front man for Marvel. He wasn't writing a lot of comics. Uh, he wasn't writing anything at the time, I think. 
Uh, so, no, uh-huh. you know, he was doing the publicity tours and, you know, so they, it was pr- quite easily easy, I think, for them to play on his, uh, you know, personality of it, play on his, uh, you know, they knew how to manipulate him to, at this point in time, I think. <laughs> That, that's a bad word to use, manipulate. But kind of, you know, when someone's been out of comics for a while, not really focusing on the titles and then finding out some of the comics are doing things they don't like, they, they're apt to say, hey, 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 let's not do this. But, you know, then you could quickly, because Brunner and Engelhardt were involved with the Doctor Strange comic this time, they knew what was going on. They could gauge the reader's, um, you know, reception of this comic a little bit better than Stan could, I think. Uh, in the 60s, yeah. Stan might have been the, the man for that, you know, but I'm thinking Roy Thomas and... The editors of the 1970s knew a little bit more of of the youth who were reading the comics at this time than Stan would have, you know. Yeah. Even though Stan was just still trolling the campuses and doing speeches, you know. But yeah, um, I mean, I don't yeah. get the impression that Roy Thomas had any issue with what they were writing, and he was pretty much, you know, in tune and in touch with things. So mm, mm, mm. I think Roy was already at this point in time. He had already accepted that. You know, Marvel Comics were shaking things up in the 70s. They were shaking things up in the 60s, but in a different way, right, Billy? Yeah. Because in the 60s, they were shaking up the very comic book form itself, you know, and mm-hmm. sto- st- comic book storytelling. And in the 70s, yeah. they were shaking up the you know, the, the, the philo- philosophical aspects of comics, like the how people saw and dealt with things like uh, social issues and religious issues. And, you mm-hmm. know, uh, that's what they were dealing with then. And Roy saw that. You know, I don't think Stan yeah. saw that, um, even though Stan did write that story about the drugs and Spider-Man. And, you know, um, <clears throat> I think, uh, I mean, Stan even said he didn't even know what drugs, you know, people were using at the time. Yeah. He just knew that, you know, drugs were bad and needed to be addressed, you know. So Stan wasn't into it. Whereas I think guys like Brenner had even admitted they were even in their comics subtly pushing, you know, uh, psychotropic drugs. I think I read that in an, in an interview with him in Back Issue magazine or something, you know, where he a- admitted that he, that's why they, there's so many. I mean, we'll see that in Doctor Strange number one, right, Billy? The next time we talk Stephen oh Strange, my gosh, where yeah. you know, get ready. They're really pushing the whole thing of you know expanding your mind through psychotropic drugs, <laughs> really. So um, you know, uh, these oh, yeah. guys had a different um, sense of what was happening in the seventies, a better sense of of what people wanted back then. I think. Well, yeah, you figure people too. like Stanley. Yeah, Stanley. You figure somebody like him, he was like a depression era guy. Yeah. You know, and, the, and these guys coming along like Engelhart and Brunner and all, like they were, Flower, you know, the next yeah. generation. Yeah. So yeah. they were really a little more loose with you know certain things than mm. Stanley certainly was. I mean, not that he was, you know. You know, stayed not, uh, and, I mean, and conservative yeah, yeah he wasn't yeah I, I think lee knew what a reefer was but <laughs> uh yeah especially jack and lee you know doing stories of reefer madness in the 50s yeah so i think there was definitely you know stan wasn't uptight by any stretch of the imagination but it was definitely that next generation that came was definitely up for more experimentation with pretty much everything across the board you know, so that's why we got all the great stuff we did in the Bronze Age. Exactly. Now, Billy, I think we've said all we can say about this. There's, there's lots Ooh. more. I would invite our yeah. listeners to write in and tell us what they think of this storyline. And um, yeah, you know, please, please let, let us know because it's it is um, so open ended, but it's also you know there's, there's lots of th- things to say about this based on your own personal experience and beliefs. So let us know, listeners, and we'll gladly read those uh, emails and feedback that we get from Twitter from mm-hmm. you based on this. So please send some in. And we'll give you a shout out on the show if you do send us some feedback. 
And then, you know, Billy, I think it's time for us to head on over to our next segment, which is Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Mistips. So we're going to have a short break. Don't go away, listeners. We'll be back in a jiffy. Get me the chief of staff. Hello. I want to speak to the president. I'm sorry, but you'll have to interrupt him. Ten seconds. We're back with Mighty Marvel Missteps and Bronze Age Brilliance. Billy, I'll let you go first. What was your Bronze Age Brilliance for this uh, two issues of Marvel Premiere 13 and 14? Okay, so for me, definitely just the complexity of a time travel story and then the consequences here. You know, they really, you know, Brunner and Engelhart, they really took a chance here and were very bold with this story. And it was complex but it made sense, you know, it was, you know, obviously there are always things you can just nitpick a little bit when there's time travel stories. You know, you and I talked about the one little thing, uh, one little point that we kind of thought, eh, I don't know about that. How does that really work? But all in all, I think they did a great job here and they were just, uh, like I said, it was a, they took a big chance here. And uh, although they had to do a, you know, send a fake letter to the <laughs> publisher at the time <laughs> to, to get everything, you know, not pulled off the shelves or have to print a retraction or anything like that. But, you know, I think uh, they should be lauded for this work because I think they pushed the envelope even further than Lee did with that Spider-Man drug issue that we talked about. I think this was even more bold than that. Yeah, no, no, I agree. <clears throat> I mean, um, yeah, it, it depends, you know, different... Uh ways to look at it i mean drugs being a more immediate problem for some folks uh you know who are living through it who have family members like that might disagree but i you know i've always had to deal with religious fundamentalists and fanatics in my life family members and acquaintances so this story spoke to me more you know so i'm thinking it has a wider application you know, but the drug story, we shouldn't, you know, definitely denigrate that. It it did serve a purpose, you know, made people more aware of what was happening to the youth and so forth in America. But, and that Green Lantern, Green Arrow story as well, with Speedy becoming a junkie. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> pencil by Neil Adamson. But still, you know, I agree with you. For me personally, and for probably hundreds of folks, thousands of folks who read this, definitely this pushed the envelope even further than that. So for mm-hmm. me, Billy, it's almost similar, but... In it, in it, I'm I'm phrasing it in a different way. What my Bronze Age brilliance is here is just the the sheer gall, the sheer <laughs> guts, <laughs> and audacity of Brunner and Engelhardt to put this story in print to 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 create something like this. That that is for me the Bronze Age brilliance. The fact that they decided, hey, let's challenge the readers. We've challenged uh-huh. ourselves with these ideas. Let's impart this to the readers through our art through our stories and through the dialogue and that is definitely the Bronze Age brilliance for me in this issue I mean the art is great as always with Brunner the writing is superb with Engelhardt the dialogue spot on all of that could be part of the Bronze Age brilliance this issue but the standout of course is the the guts of these two guys you know to put this out there 
And uh, mm-hmm. what a great story, I think, for the 70s. One of the quintessential Marvel Bronze Age stories because of the, the implications, right? Billy is staggering. That means mm-hmm. everybody else, after this issue, every other character in the Marvel Universe, they all live in this new universe without knowing it. Steven is yeah. the only one. He's the only one who knew. Well, and Baron Mordo, but he's catatonic now. So, <laughs> yeah. Steven... I mean, every time he interacts with one of the defenders, with the Avengers, with with Clea, with Wong, he's thinking, you are not the person I knew before. You know, Mm -hmm. you are the same. You're similar. It's like speaking to a clone, but you're different. You've been recreated. It's not the same universe. I mean, it's just the same template, right, Billy, that CZ Mm -hmm. used, but it is actually everything's new. Everything's different. He's the only person. It's kind of like Galactus. You know, Galactus is a being called Galan from the previous universe, universe before the Big yeah. Bang. Think how Galactus must have felt. Now, this is similar. Steven is, well, it's almost similar. Steven is a being from the previous universe, the only one, along with Mordo, who's mm-hmm. now, you know, know, who knows the truth. The implications are know. just staggering. Yeah, do you know, does Mordo ever reference this again in context? No, I don't know that he does. No, I think when he woke up, he had complete amnesia. He, he, uh-huh. This was this was uh, his psyche or his um, brain just uh, blacked this out, you know, to preserve his sanity. I think, and yeah. um, you know, and Stephen sort of <laughs> went insane too. So I don't know how he coped with it, but I think Stephen's <laughs> a little bit more mentally, uh, you know, sound, uh, more uh, you know, stronger mentally than Mordo, so he could kind of deal with it, but. Yeah, Mordo never again. Never. Not not that I've read. Yeah, you know I mean, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like think about all the things they threw into this story because it's a time travel story and they hit all these different eras, you know, I mean, like 18th century Paris. Mm. Then they were in, where were they after that? After that, they went to um, the Arthurian era. Um, yeah, the Arthurian England. era. Mm. And saw the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah. Then they're in the... The dinosaur you know, the, age, yeah. dinosaur age, like they, they they pulled out all the stops in this story, and none of it seemed to be out of place or ridiculous at all. It all really came together, and each individual part was good, and it all came together good. They're just, it was a brilliant story. Yeah, that has to be anybody who's read this. It has to be their Bronze Age brilliance. Mighty Marvel missteps, uh, Billy. Would you mind if I go first for that one? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, the Mighty Marvel missteps um, that I found, uh, the storytelling, you could never describe it as clunky, but the fact that they used Cagliostro, 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 (laughs) however you pronounce it, as uh, the sort of disguise for Cizanek, that really doesn't make any sense for me because he's already so powerful as a sorcerer back in time, at the time of Uh 18th century France, where he impersonated uh, Cagliostro and then decided to write the book on time travel for no reason because he says the reason is so that people will know how he did it you know it's sort of like his own personal bible that he's writing and yet he doesn't credit himself as the writer he credits Cagliostro a stranger as the writer who's off fighting <laughs> Dracula that part doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense and then uh, you know like your interpretation makes more sense to me which is subconsciously he wanted someone to read the book in the future so that they could come back to become witnesses to his, you know, um, to his uh, quest to become God. Now, (laughs) that is more plausible. But the fact that he doesn't consciously reference that makes me think, uh, the writers also didn't really think that part out very clearly. They just wanted to, you know, to 
get somewhere so they sort of put that in there to to make a bit of a leap of logic there to get to the next part of the story that part is a little bit weird and then another part that's weird is the fact that you know um in the second issue on the cover they keep calling him Cagliostro making me think that the cover might have been done before Brunner and Engelhart decided on the fact that now they're going to go go full on CZ neck you know it might have even been yeah. done before they finished the the first part of the story you know which Could is be, yeah. or maybe they just don't want to throw it away but they already teased it in the previous issue you know in the in the in the uh, cliffhanger at the end so i don't know why the cover would still after it's been revealed that Cagliostro is in fact CZ Nick, why the next issue's cover would still have Cagliostro on it. So it kind of makes me think that there was some, you know, scheduling that uh, interrupted the flow of ideas there. Um, but, you know, um, it, the rest worked out brilliantly uh, story-wise. It's just a few things that I would have, as a writer, you know, if, if I was still writing, <laughs> which I'm not writing a lot of these days, I would have maybe have, you know, been a bit more careful there and tweaked a few details but that's nitpicking like we always do when it comes to bronze age uh brilliance and mighty marvel missteps what what's your misstep here i honestly i really i can't even nitpick any little silly thing for me these are just these are two perfect issues for me i i really mm. can't take uh offense to anything they did i really can't i just think to myself they really did a good job with this that it's just not even something silly that might even make me chuckle you know i mean i feel like you know you were saying maybe if they would have written it as um he went back in time to that era to just you know steal cagliostro's power that was the main reason why he went back to that time you know but the whole thing of him impersonating him doesn't really make any sense like you said so that's kind of a that's definitely a, a little bit of a weird yeah a side know, wonky there. Miss, misstep there yeah for sure i can't argue with that at all but yeah for me it's just i, I can totally just overlook that and say you know eh, that's just one of those things and man i just i can't read these two issues even these last three and actually get any kind of a negative vibe by no, anything same, not even same artwork no. artwork story nothing same here. I mean, in the previous Doctor Strange discussion we did two episodes back, there was a cover of Brunner that we didn't really care for, featuring the gargoyle, remember? It was a little bit wonky. Yeah. But even that cover was brilliant. You know, so I know what you mean. It's like, even when they're not firing on all cylinders, they're way ahead of the competition. You know, Brunner yeah. and Ingrolart. So it's this, this almost, I almost feel guilty when I complain about something because there <laughs> isn't much, you know, to complain about. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. listeners, I'm sure you'll feel the same if you've read these comics or when you do read them because this is good Marvel Bronze Age uh, storytelling and art. Uh, there's just no two ways about it. So, mm -hmm. you know, Billy, I think we're all in agreement. Uh, this is sort of the height of Brunner and Engelhardt's um, Doctor Strange run here, but it, but still the, the great stories coming, amazing stories coming. Some of my favorite stuff... Oh still still on the horizon but this is sort of the creative peak that they reached um after this the stories became um still very creative very enjoyable but nothing this earth shattering if you think about it nothing this universe changing kind of crisis on infinite earth level um you know uh, kind of storytelling so uh yeah this is definitely the highlight of uh, their doctor strange run in the eyes of many fans 
Excuse me, what? What did I just hear? The greatest Doctor Strange story of all should be one featuring me. Come on, moi! The, the dictator of the Dark Dimension. The, the wielder of the flames of the Faulting. Oh, excuse me. Ulcers are my ulcers. God damn it, these humans. How can anyone accept recommendations from these idiots? If it wasn't for the favors that I already owe Ragnar, I'd go to Earth and neuter these fools. Anyway, let's just calm down. Do what old Rags always says, when in doubt. Read some of his books, read some of the recommendations. Just get your set on. But if I ever get my hands on delicious blow, they'll rule the day they ever picked Seizy back over me. Welcome back to the Recommendations of Ragador. All right, Billy, as ever, this is your baby. I'll let you go first. What do you have on the docket for us this time around? Well, thanks to you and this awesome recommendation, uh, I was able to pick up three trades, uh, all volume number one, and there are multiple volumes. But back in the 1970s, uh, a smaller comic book company started up called Skywald, and they produced uh, some magazines, mostly horror, I think, if not all horror, didn't they? Uh, yeah, mostly I, horror. Mostly horror. Yeah, definitely. mostly horror. Yeah, so they had some horror titles called Nightmare, Scream, and Psycho, and I was going to try to actually pick up these magazines one at a time, which would be sheer lunacy because they're <laughs> getting expensive. Uh, but you alerted me to them being reprinted because I guess they're in the public domain. So That's right. this printer picked them up and put them in the trades, and you get four magazines in each trade which is awesome. So for $15, you were able to get four magazines in this trade. So uh, I couldn't be happier. So now I basically have 12 magazines in three trades, and the work is great. Like, you know, you and I talked off mic a little bit. The spine is a little, I don't want to say generic, I guess, but, you know, the covers are all in there. The quality of the paper and the reprint is good. They're yeah. really, really good trades. I'd recommend them to anybody. That's right. Yeah, I mean... Um... Uh, we could go into the history of Skywall a bit on the Long Box of Darkness. We still have to... Billy, I'm, uh, I invited you to talk to me about the Skywall mm. stuff over there. But yeah. those that company is sort of like a cult favorite now because they, they never had any large print runs. So, number one, their magazines are kind of hard to find, right? But for a while yeah. there, they were... Uh, cheap to pick up because nobody really everybody forgot about them you know like in the 80s and 90s and then later on of course now in the 2000s then when they became really rare that's when people started mm -hmm. to really struggle to to get their hands on these stories so yeah <clears throat> for me um i did read a bit of airboy and the heap but i never read a lot of psycho or nightmare um or scream I had, I think, when I was at a second-hand bookstore in the 80s, I picked up two magazines of theirs, one Nightmare and one Scream, and it was in a horrible condition, atrocious condition. So I didn't really know a lot about them until, 
you know, recently when I picked up these volumes from, I mean, I've, I've always known, you know, what research is available on net on the net about Skywall, but I never read them as a kid much, you know, so that that's one part of my horror, you know, uh, comic knowledge that's severely lacking is me actually having read the stuff that I'm talking about. Sometimes I like yeah. to have to, I like to read the things that I'm talking about. I don't like to just do the research on it and talk about something that I've never read which is unfortunately the case with Skywald. I couldn't find get my hands on these copies. But now with this Gawandana Land publishing company, <laughs> which you can find on Amazon, they're there. They've also yeah. got their own website. Gawandana Land, they're reprinting all these 60s and 70s comics with, you know, like you say, no copyright. Um, mm-hmm. And they've got lots of titles. They've got um, obviously stuff. They've got a lot of Western titles, you know, the Bravados, Butch Cassidy. They even had like a Judy Garland comic, but they're mm. mostly known for horror. And they on, only had these yeah. three horror titles. But this is the one. These are and and one called Hell Rider, which was sort of um, you know uh, almost like a Ghost Rider esque. Uh, it wasn't really a ripoff. It's actually more Evil Knievel ripoff, which Ghost Rider actually is too, if you think about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they had that, and but Nightmare, Scream, and Psycho was what they were really known for because that they were they had the best creators in the horror industry. They had lots of Tom Sutton, you know. They had some Archie Goodwin in there writing. They had Joe Orlando. They had you know lots of the 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 guys that we consider legends now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Bill Everett even from from you know yeah. Submariner got some horror tales yep. in there. Rich Buckler and oh 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 I can't believe I forgot him. Gene Day from yeah. from 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 Shang Chi, a master of kung fu, one of my kung favorite fu. pencilers of all time. Pablo Marcos, you know, mm-hmm. and and we talk about Engelhardt. Engelhardt was a writer for them in the early yep. days. You know, he wrote a lot of horror tales for them, and then Marf Wolpen too. You know, Dave Sim, Doug Munch, all these great guys. I, I'm, I might be wrong here. Jennifer DeRoz might be able to help us out here, but I think even Gardner Fox, Fox. did, yeah, a couple of stories yeah. for them. So you mm-hmm. know, they're very. They had the the pick of the bunch when it came to the best creators, and um, these stories definitely show that. You know, this is even better than the creepy and eerie uh, magazines for me. You know, because it seemed to me that they compressed the best of the best in one bunch, whereas the creepy and eerie magazines were sort of content to also give some you know time to new creators who were sometimes hit and miss you know what i mean which yeah, for all, sure. all kudos to them for doing that you know challenge uh, you know providing new talent whereas scream and you know nightmare and psycho from skywall they deliberately wanted the old you know uh, famous uh, guys with with a lot of you know bang for their experience. buck yeah, yeah experience to come along and so you get um, less stories but you get a better concentration of quality I think and uh, mm-hmm. these reprints show that like you say well bound thick paper beautiful reprinted art and you know, the covers themselves are so striking I posted a couple on my Twitter account a couple of months ago and uh, got a good response yeah. that's how good they are so Billy no mm-hmm. I'm so glad you you hopped on that bandwagon and got them because mm-hmm. they're they're yeah, the, like you said the magazines are almost impossible to buy on eBay unless you've Oh, they're to crazy. Fork out the cash. So, um, for me, uh, I'm going to recommend a couple of things. Okay, I, I mentioned earlier I was watching this summer, uh, I was watching a lot of Doom Patrol. I rewatched season one uh, on HBO Go, which I watched last year. I finished it last year and I rewatched season one and then started rewatching, uh, then started watching season two. 
and they're on episode nine now of season two. I think there's one episode left, whereas season one dealt with Mr. Nobody, you know, from um, the Brotherhood of Dada from the Grand Morrison <laughs> uh, <laughs> era of the Doom Patrol, which is wacky and great. Um, the season two dealt with something way more frightening, which is also from the Grand Morrison era, but it's more horror centric, which is the Candle Maker. Uh, an entity that lives in the mind of a girl called Dorothy Spinner. So we've we've been seeing some really great horror tropes in season two. Season one had them as well, but um, I'm enjoying season two way more. And um, it's just a brilliant series. So I could recommend that for anyone who hasn't jumped on the bandwagon of the Doom Patrol, the TV show yet. And that's a really a good time. And then I don't know if you saw, Billy, the Charlize Theron helmed movie, The Old Guard on Netflix. Mm. Um, that's based off of the Greg Rucka and I think Leandro Fernandez is the guy's name um, the artist um, who did uh, the original series there for uh, a comic book series The Old Guard I think it was a mini series of six issues and they've since started another one um, a second mini series but I've only read the first one the first one was pretty good but I dare say this is a case of the movie being better than the comic which is rare, right, Billy? Ooh, wow, yeah. But it is really better. They flesh out the mythology. It's about these group of immortals who have been soldiers their whole lives. Some of them are from the, the Greek era. Some of them are from the Crusades. Some of them are from the French Revolution, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, China's dynasties, you know, the Three Kingdoms era. And uh, they all meet up with each other because they're psychically connected once a new immortal is born. They can't die, but one day you just drop dead for no reason. One day your immortality just run out, but you never know when. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, really. You know, it, it could happen to anyone. It just It's just your time, right? So they can die, but um, most of them have been alive for thousands of years, and they're, you know, this elite team of special op soldiers in the present day, you know, righting wrongs and, and taking these dangerous jobs. So it's a great, great premise. Cool. The story isn't very straightforward. There's lots of twists and turns, you know, they get kidnapped by this company who wants the secrets of their immortality and a new immortal is born and all of that. It's it's really cool. I would recommend that movie. It's a good time. You should watch it, Billy. You'll like it. Yeah, and sounds neat. Charlize Theron, fellow South African. Oh, I knew good. about her before the rest of the world knew about her. She was a, a big deal in SA in the early 90s, long before she went to the States. So it's still a bit surreal that she, you know, became such a big name in, in, in Hollywood for, for a South African, you know. But yeah, um, cool. there's also a couple of other good actors in that movie, too. Um, okay, I read a lot of stuff, though. I um, uh, just finished uh, reading... <laughs> okay, this is something I read way back when in comic book form, but I recently picked up the trade. Billy, I don't know, have you ever read the Garth Ennis and Amanda Connor series... For Vertigo, the pro. <laughs> no, I've never heard of this one. Oh my God. Okay, okay. This is a total parody of superhero comics, like Garth Ennis is one to do with his The Boys and stuff like that, right? And the pro, basically, oh. the premise is a prostitute, a prostitute gets oh. a streetwalker gets given superpowers. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but it, it's well. it's a it's a comedically written comic, but it's. It's PG-18, very bloody, lots of sex, lots of... You you see everything that a prostitute is doing in her daily night, you know, or nights walking the streets, but you also see superheroics. And um, 
Oh man, it's just great. Uh, basically, just the, the I'll tell you the beginning without spoiling anything for folks who haven't read it yet. Amanda Connor's art is amazing. You know, she's she's known for doing characters like Harley Quinn and Power Girl, and she does them really well. But Garth Ennis, very irreverent when it comes to writing comic books. You know, he's got, does a lot of swearing and comes up with a lot of good um, scenarios involving superheroes being uh, subjugated to you know ridicule. But in this case, uh, there's a character based on the Watcher. He's called the Viewer. But his his little <laughs> robot servant, the robot servant with him, calls him by his true name, which is the Voyeur. <laughs> so what he does is he hangs around Earth in an invisible spaceship, and he he basically looks at every single person, uh, every hot babe on Earth, and then. <laughs> Uh, every now and then he gives them superpowers <laughs> so he shoots a bolt of, of, of light down to earth and then he gives this girl this this prostitute lady superpowers and then she's asked to join he alerts the liberty legion you know which is the justice league of this world <laughs> he alerts them to the fact that there's a new super and then they're missed Amidst. So the whole comic is about them trying to recruit her to be a part of the Liberty Legion, but she's just not their kind of material, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to leave it there, but it's hilarious. It's fun. It's got, it's, it's um, very short. It's so one and done. You know, I think it's 72 pages. It, it only collects three issues, I think, and um, it's worth picking up. There's, there's now a hardcover out. I, I've got the trade. And the original issues like before, but I'd suggest you pick it mm -hmm. up. It's, it's really good. Great art. And uh, Yeah, I just looked it up quick here. And it says, <laughs> later, later editions feature an additional eight-page story entitled The Pro versus The Ho. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's, yeah. that's a great story. You know, the Ho is a, is a lady, uh, an African-American lady who's been also zapped by the viewer or the voyeur. And she's got mm -hmm. multiple arms coming out of every orifice. So she's the master <laughs> of hand jobs. <laughs> the mistress yeah, says, of hand She The pro squares off with a 12-armed prostitute. And it says, in the story, the hoe receives power in much the same way the pro does via the alien viewer that orbits Earth in a cloaked ship. Because the pro has superpowers... She is able to perform sex acts using super speed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that she doesn't oh give up her her job as a, as a streetwalker. Uh, she, yeah, the Liberty uh, no. Legion. Even though they give her a stipend of cash to be part of the Liberty Legion, she still keeps oh. doing her job to get rich Turning quick. Tricks. Wow! I oh mean, the back God. cover of the trade paperback is hilarious. They've got all these, um, uh, you know, testimonials from. From famous comic book writers, listen. Okay, so first the the, the introduction or the the back cover says she curses, she smokes, she blows away the competition. She's the most unlikely person on earth to get superpower. She's the pro. And then you've got something from Gail Simone, Joe Casey, Brian K. Vaughan, Jimmy Palmiotti. Now, um, Amanda Connor's husband is Jimmy Palmiotti, right? So one of the testimonials on the back is by Joe Casey saying Amanda Connor is hot. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> then you have Brian K. Vaughan saying, this is the watchman of comics about unprotected sex with whores. <laughs> oh, my God. And then right below that, Jimmy Palmiotti, the husband of Amanda Connor, says, Joe Casey is a dead man. 
<laughs> because he called his wife hot earlier. Who is the publisher of this? Image? Uh, Image Comics, yeah. Sorry. Did I say oh, Vertigo? Okay. Sorry, I meant Image Comics. Yeah, I uh, thought you said Vertigo. I'm thinking, who the heck put this out? But Vertigo, they put out some wild stuff, too. No, this sorry. This even sounds this pretty wild Image. for them. Yeah, sorry. Uh, mistake there on my part, <laughs> listeners. This Image. And you know, the, the dedication to the comic is the strangest thing yet. Listen to this. The dedication for Jim Steranko. <laughs> what? What? Wow. There's a story, there's a story there begging to be told. Maybe I'll ask him on Twitter. He's very receptive to people oh, on Twitter. Oh, please ask Durango. him because I want to know what's the story behind this. This might be a totally, you know, just to mess with him or something. Anyway, mm-hmm. that brings it to the end of my recommendations <laughs> for Fragador Billy. It's insane. Listeners, read it if you haven't yet or if you have send us your thoughts about this comic because it's hilarious. So, Billy, that brings us to an end of yet another great Doctor Strange uh, episode. I enjoy talking about the good Doctor once again. I know you do mm-hmm. always. I mean, he's our man. We love coming oh, yeah. back to him. He wouldn't. We, this sh- show wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Sorcerer Supreme and um, all the childhood memories we've got from him, reading him as kids. And uh, my love of comics stemmed from this guy and horror, of course, but... You know, I should say my love of superhero comics started and will probably end with Doctor Strange. So, you know, we're always glad to come back to The Good Doctor. We'll be back again with another episode soon. Our, By the time you hear this episode, listeners, our Shang-Chi, A Man-Thing, a Daredevil episode will have dropped. So send us feedback about this and about the previous episode. We'd love to read that on the show. But Billy, before we say goodbye, where can people find you on the interwebs? So jump on Twitter if you're not already on there and uh, look up uh, my name's Doc Strange and it's at Billy D underscore Licious. Uh, always, you know, trying to be uh, into some good comic book and movie conversations and stuff like that with you and everybody else on Twitter. That's super cool. And then uh, I have magazines and monsters, uh, my blog and a Facebook page by the same name. Awesome, Billy. And for me, you can find me on Twitter at Dark Longbox. Um, you can also check out the website www.longboxofdarkness.com and for this show you can find us on at intoweird on twitter and please send feedback to www.sinkintotheweird.com and um, then other than that Billy I'm th- I don't have any <laughs> other presences online I was thinking about a Facebook page there for a while but I was thinking oh man it's too much effort <laughs> maybe one day <laughs> Maybe when we get to our Patreon, <laughs> Maybe. which might never happen. <laughs> anyway, so listeners, um, that's it for us. Take good care of yourselves. Protect yourselves. Wear masks. Be like the shadow, but keep your nose covered. Don't let your use, huge schnarch, you know, <laughs> lean over the mask like, like Lamont Cranston's. And yeah, take care of your loved ones. Uh, you know, keep that social distance six feet between you and... Even the hottest of the hot girls, the weirdest of the weird girls out there. And we should all be safe and and see each other at the other end of this with smiles on our faces, hopefully. So um, uh, I'll leave you with that. And stay weird. Stay cool. We'll be back. And uh, look for us on all your favorite podcast providers. Take care of yourself, weird ones. Sailing softly through the sun In a broken stone age dawn You fly